Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. The Ford F-150 truck drives smart design forward. The standard 12-inch productivity screen helps you get what you need done too. And the available Pro-Access tailgate improves access to bed and cargo and utilization of the bed, including when towing a trailer. Together with a wider bumper step, it's easier to access the bed and load in tight spaces. An available ProPower onboard serves as a mobile power source, providing up to 7.2 kilowatts of power to charge a bed full of electric dirt bikes or run an entire job site worth of tools. I'm still driving my 2016 F-150 truck and 90,000 miles in. As long as I keep it clean, it honestly still looks brand new. I've taken it down snow-covered forest service roads, taken it out camping, put a ton of miles on it on the freeway, had five adults in the cabin for long trips, and it's been great everywhere. Super dependable. I still love the way it looks, nice and rugged design, but with a super comfortable interior. And I'm still very happy with the quality sound system and heated seats. And since I bought my 2016 F-150 truck, the list of standard amenities that make a truck feel like a luxury vehicle have only grown. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. First. It was Glenn Cooley, a 20-year-old college dropout. Then it was Devereaux Cleaver, a 14-year-old girl. Next it was Sandy Cleaver, Devereaux's mom who died along with Sandy's housekeeper, Louise Watson, in the same accident. One by one, people connected to a woman named Terry Hoffman just kept dying. By 1989, 11 people who were either members or family members to members of Terry Hoffman's strange cult, conscious development, would die under mysterious circumstances or disappear. Many of them were suicides. Some of them would claim in suicide notes they left behind to be suffering from a terminal illness. They wanted to end it all and avoid needless and unavoidable suffering before their inevitable and untimely death. But then a coroner would find no trace of that illness in their remains or a trace of any other illness. After their deaths, these people would often leave Terry Hoffman in conscious development thousands and thousands of dollars, sometimes their entire estates, confusing children and family members they left behind and raising suspicions. While some of these family members knew that their departed loved ones had been interested in new age spirituality and that Terry billed herself as a kind of guru, they generally had no idea how deep the devotion to Terry and her wild ideas went. Terry Hoffman was an unusual cult leader. No compound, no sexually manipulating or outright sexually abusing followers. Just a lot of outlandish claims of divine truth mixed with a gift for emotionally manipulating others and filling their heads with so many crazy ideas crazy ideas and paranoia that many of them would choose to end their lives shortly after signing over whatever they owned to Terry to make sure she was well taken care of after they transcended and freed themselves from the prisons of their earthly bodies. Terry had preached that their bodies were holding them back and they tragically listened. Terry was the daughter of impoverished laborers who became the leader of a movement that appealed not just to confused teens, disillusioned college students, and random spiritual seekers in the late 1960s when so many cults were forming in America but also to educated people well into their careers and adult lives like a Yale-educated college professor. She offered them someplace free of judgment where she revealed to them stories of their past lives, metaphysical souls, and true purposes. 
Soon, many took solace in the strange reassurances that she gave, and some even took her madness deathly seriously. They began to bind to her ideology, a complicated, convoluted New Age philosophy that told them to strive for balance, a state of equilibrium among physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual bodies. Critical thoughts called negative energies could be draining, even deadly. Fear of cancer, Terry taught, for example, could cause cancer. Life's ultimate goal was to become highly evolved enough to share the loftiest spiritual plane with God and the masters during the next incarnation. And that, of course, required total commitment to Terry's teachings and only to Terry's teachings. Cult, cult, cult. We've been here before, many times now. If you wish to enter the highest realms, Terry wrote, you need to work to develop the latent power of your emotions, mind, and soul. And Terry was the one who would identify and train you to develop those latent powers. Over decades, Terry would tap into the angst of a restless generation dissatisfied with traditional religion and its inability to provide clear answers to impossible questions, as numerous other cult leaders were also doing across America. Unlike a lot of America's cult leaders, she didn't do this in Southern or Central California. She did it in Dallas. In the early 80s, as more and more people in the U.S. pursued personal pleasure, sweet, sweet cocaine, and packed nightclubs, as divorce and materialism was on the rise, Terry didn't admonish them for these pursuits. She reassured them that they were destined to be wealthy and stable. She wanted them to find bliss in every encounter. At first, but then eventually, as her twisted theology continued to mutate and grow darker, things started to go off the rails. Soon, Terry introduced the Black Lords, a sort of invisible, satanic-like army of evil entities that her followers would have to physically fight with sticks and karate moves for hours at a time at cult get-togethers that Terry arranged. Man, I wish I had some footage of just one of those secret meetings. She also taught that death was meaningless. You will also become conscious of the continuity of life, she wrote. Death, then, will not exist in reality, for you will realize that your existence is not dependent upon the mere maintenance of your physical body. After all, she wrote, the result of noble death is rebirth. And then surprise, surprise, many of the people around the guru who preached that death was meaningless and a new life awaited after this one started to die, many of them by suicide. And conveniently, they would make Terry the sole beneficiary of everything they owned. When others pointed out how incredibly suspicious this all looked, Terry refused to take responsibility for any of these deaths. She'd say she counseled emotionally troubled people who were more prone to taking their own lives than the average person, that she certainly hadn't pressured anyone to leave their money to her. But was that true? Had she perhaps been working on their minds, pumping them full of drugs to alter their moods, make them more susceptible to her increasingly toxic, toxic messages? Had she maybe hypnotized them, attempted her own homegrown form of mind control that eventually broke them down, turned them into unnaturally devoted followers who thought it was the right thing to do to leave Earth and leave Terry all their earthly possessions? Versions of this are what some family members and some prosecutors would come to believe. A lawsuit filed by two of Terry's stepchildren the son and daughter of one of her late husbands, Richard Donald Hoffman, accused her of having caused or contributed to the string of deaths through hypnosis, behavior modification, mind control, and manipulation of emotions. Pretty crazy accusations. But after sitting in the world of the story the past few days, I buy it. Her motive, according to the suit, profit or material gain for the self-appointed guru, Terry Hoffman. So just who was Terry Hoffman? Was she actually a cult leader? or just a really terrible spiritual advisor? What message did she peddle to the masses? Why did people keep dying around her? And was she really capable of manipulating person after person after person in her orbit to take their own lives? And maybe most importantly, why was she never charged with playing a role in any of this? The strange and mystical world of Terry Hoffman, right now, on another cult, cult, cult edition of Time Suck.
This is Michael McDonald, and you're listening to Time Suck. You're listening to Time Suck. Happy Monday, Meat Sacks. Welcome to the Cult of the Curious. Man, I got a wild one for you today. Uh, I'm, Dan, I'm Dan Cummins, a suck master, suck Radamus, recent recipient of the award for best Australian accent of all time, presented by the International Council of People who have never been to Australia or ever heard an Australian speak in either any form of media or in real life. And you are listening to Time Suck. Crikey, rapper. Uh, hail Nimrod, hail Lucifina, praiseable jangles, and glory be to Triple M. Uh, just one announcement today, a quick one, Meat Sacks, and then we're off and running. I uh, got a very cool new wormhole tea in the Bad Magic store this week. Uh, looks like a looks like an awesome nebulous portal kind of thing. It's very fitting for today's episode uh, with Time Suck written in the middle. Jump into this tea, float along the astral plane with Nimrod. Find the Akashic Records or something. Or at least check it out at badmagicmerch.com. And that's it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let's go. Uh, diving back into the realm of cults today with Terry Hoffman. Fucking maniac. Uh, who started a group typically called Consciously Development. Its full name was Conscious Development of Body, Mind, and Soul. Sounds harmless. Definitely wasn't. Uh, Though it would never end in some kind of Jonestown type of mass suicide event, it would still be very deadly. Within a few years, Terry successfully recruited hundreds of members, and, uh, you know, the the inner circle, many of them, 10 known members, either committed suicide, were murdered, have disappeared, that would be the 11th, or met with tragic accidents under mysterious circumstances. In the early 1960s, Terry started off as a, a teacher of spirituality, meeting up with spiritually curious seekers at the Brookhaven Country Club in Farmer's Branch, a North Dallas suburb. Soon she was teaching a class of sorts, which was free to attend on the campus of Southern Methodist University. And by the early 70s, it was known uh, as Dallas's uh, foremost metaphysical study group. She taught hundreds of Dallas students face-to-face, excuse me, about Eastern spiritual practices, concepts and values such as meditation, reincarnation, the theory of karma and astral travel, a lot of lot else, uh, a lot of other things. Terry's teachings emphasize balance, perspective, freedom from drugs. Even though I think she may have uh, given uh, at least some of her uh, students some drugs, she was riding the wave of a big upswing in new age spirituality. And before I set up the rest of this episode's structure, I do want to talk for a little while about uh, just generally about new age beliefs, since that's uh, what her mumbo jumbo was rooted in. Uh, the new age movement was spreading rapidly through the 1970s and 80s in the U.S. and many other nations, uh, with more and more people turning away from ancient religions, finding alternative sources of spiritual guidance. Many were dissatisfied with traditional religion, but also not interested in turning to free love and hedonism, like uh, the hippies of the 60s, you know, uh, during the counterculture m- movement we're doing. New Age beliefs uh, did have their roots in the 60s, though, as expectations of a new age increased in the 1960s, a time where we would be free of society's ills like poverty and hunger, a new organization, the Universal Foundation, appeared. Its wealthy leader, Anthony Brooke, traveled widely across the U.S. beginning in the mid-1960s as a, a type of new age evangelist, predicting that an apocalyptic event would occur during the Christmas season of 1967. For fuck's sake. Doomsday prophets even woven into new age beliefs, of course. I forgot about that. Could everyone rooting for the end of the world please, finally, regardless of what belief system you're coming at the end times from, Just maybe go get fucked. You are no smarter than any of the world's previous doomsday believers. There have been so many 
some of whom attained fame and fortune in their lives, usually at the expense of followers, giving them lots of money because they truly thought the world was ending. But in the end, all end times prophets and every one of their believers have been wrong thus far. Every last fucking one of them. To think you suddenly have the answers and are smarter and have more insight than all the previous dipshits doesn't make you special or wise or the one true prophet. It makes you just another dipshit in a very long line of the same kind of dipshit. Uh, Although the apocalyptic event Brooke predicted never took place, of course, they never do, an international network of new age groups emerged in preparation for it. And now a new religious movement based, of course, in many of the teachings of other religions and also building on the back of, uh, you know, older spiritual movements like Madame Helena Blavatsky's theosophy of the late 19th century was being born. And like all religions, you know, uh, spiritual systems that began to mutate, evolve and morph. In 1970, American theosophist David Spangler another central figure of the New Age movement, moved to the Fintorn Foundation, a spiritual community just outside the village of Fintorn, Scotland, that began in the 1960s, morphing out of some kind of pseudo-Christian movement there in the 1950s that slowly began to incorporate elements of theosophy, like the ability to channel extraterrestrials through telepathy. Oh, fuck yeah, bro. Uh, these beliefs continue to morph and mutate around the world today. A lot of people call themselves light workers and star seeds now thinking it's their calling to help uh, transform the world into a new age, uh, generally by sharing vague, positive-sounding gibberish sold as ancient wisdom supposedly delivered through various channels, uh, typically given to these channels by wise and ancient aliens who in many of these belief systems are our ancestors who kicked off human life here, then left, and will only return when we are spiritually, collectively ready to receive them. A lot of talk about raising your vibrations and frequencies and manifesting positive change through focusing on laws of attraction or uh, making sure your fucking power crystals are charged with the right amount of moon juice, uh, yada, yada, yada. I don't want to get too deep into the weeds with this constantly changing belief system that thanks to lacking any real agreed upon core documents changes from decade to decade, person to person. Anyway, back in the early 70s at the Feinhorn Foundation, a man named David Spangler again, uh, developed some ideas that will later become considered fundamental to the new age movement. Ideas not founded primarily on uh, the love and good vibes of the 60s, uh, you know, love and good vibes, but on science, kind of, but not really. He would sell it as science. Other people also lacking a firm understanding of what science uh, actually is would parrot that assertion, uh, but not science. Science is the systematic study of the structure and behavior of the physical and natural world through observation, experimentation, and the testing of theories against the evidence obtained. It is actually tested. Uh, what Spangler preached was not that. What he was actually talking about can definitely be defined as pseudoscience. And pseudoscience is not kind of science. Pseudoscience is not um, science light. It's defined as a collection of beliefs or practices mistakenly regarded as being based on scientific method. So essentially, it is made up bullshit disguised with a bunch of big words to sound like science. And I know that phrasing is inflammatory, but also very accurate. Uh, Spangler believed that the release of new waves of spiritual energy signaled by certain astrological changes like the movement of the earth into a new cycle known as the age of Aquarius had initiated the coming of the new age. In astrology, which is a study of the movements and relative positions of celestial bodies interpreted via pseudoscience, not science, as having an influence on human affairs in the natural world, The age of Aquarius is an astrological era believed to bring increased spirituality and harmony on earth. Astrological eras last approximately 2,160 years, corresponding to the average time it takes for the vernal equinox to move from one constellation of the zodiac into the next. And because this shit is all pseudoscience, not science, uh, astrologers 
can't even agree on when the Aquarian age will start or if it has already started. In 1999, Nicholas Champion, Campion, excuse me, I should have just added an H in there. Champion's a fucking better name than Campion. Anyway, <laughs> Nicholas Campion, a British astrologer and historian of astrology and cultural astronomy, uh, a former Daily Mail astrologer for years and president of the Astrological Association of Great Britain from 1994 to 1999, uh, listed various references from mainly astrological sources for the start of the age of Aquarius. Based on Campion's summary, most published materials on the subject, coming from 29 different noted astrologers, stated that the age of Aquarius arrived at some point in the 20th century, with the 24th century coming in at second place with 12 claimants. Other astrologers listed additional centuries. Uh, Early in the 20th century, most astrologers were convinced that the age of Aquarius would begin in the 27th century, but then they went back to the blackboard and erased and carried the one and I don't know, did some fucking times this number by that number and it went all over the place. Uh, Precisely predicting the age of Aquarius is a lot like precisely predicting the end times. No one has a fucking clue what they're talking about. Uh, But David Spangler claimed to know exactly what he was talking about, of course, and was excited about this coming age of Aquarius that is right around the corner. It's right, it's always right around the corner. Uh, He'd been excited about this stuff for years. As a child, Spangler became convinced he was clairvoyantly aware of non-physical entities. While in Morocco at the age of seven, He said he had a mystical experience of merging with the timeless presence of oneness within the cosmos and then remembering his existence prior to this life, as well as the process by which he chose to become David Spangler and entered into his present incarnation. And uh, cool story, bro. I've thought shit like that too when I'm fucking high. Uh, Following that experience, his claims, uh, he claims his awareness of and contact with various inner, inner worlds of spirit was heightened. Uh, though he believes throughout his childhood that everyone shared the kind of perception and experience that he had. Doesn't sound like he had a lot of friends. Pretty sure if I would have shared beliefs like that when I was a kid with my, with my friends, uh, I would have gotten mocked uh, and or beat up. Uh, when he was a teen, his family moved to Phoenix, where he met other individuals who claimed to be clairvoyant and people acting as channels for non-physical entities. Yeah, Arizona's been a hot spot of new age beliefs for, for years. And he realized that his own inner experiences uh, were not common. In his late teens, he was asked by members of some metaphysical study groups to give talks on his own inner contacts leading up to 1964 when he gave the keynote address at a national spiritual conference on youth and the new age. The following year, he'd drop out of college, go heavy into the LA metaphysical scene. Uh, Metaphysics, by the way, is a branch of philosophy that deals with the first principles of things, uh, including abstract concepts such as being, knowing, substance, right? Cause, identity, time, space, a lot of room for interpretation and speculation within metaphysics, a lot, really fun to talk about and speculate about. Impossible to know much of this with certainty though. I imagine that in the LA burgeoning new age scene, uh, Spangler also did a fucking ton of awesome drugs and listened to a lot of fantastic music. And then pretty soon he was off to Fine Torn Foundation to share what he believed he knew and learned from other like-minded uh, spiritual seekers. Uh, returning to the US in the mid 1970s after becoming joint director of the community in Finehorn, Spangler now became the main architect of the new movement. He presented his ideas in a set of popular books beginning with Revelation, the birth of the new age in 1976 and attracted many leaders from older occult and metaphysical organizations, theosophical organizations to the growing new age movement. And again, there's a lot of variance in what people who claim new age beliefs uh, adhere to. But in the movement's developing years, almost all of the emerging new age schools of thought did have two main beliefs in common, Uh, New Age schools of thought, as far as I know, still have these two main beliefs in common, uh, almost always. First, they predict that a new age of heightened spiritual consciousness and international peace will arrive and bring an end to racism, poverty, 
sickness, hunger, uh, war, uh, dry humping, uh, anything bad. Anything bad is gone. Uh, the social transformation will uh, social transformation will result from the massive spiritual awakening of the general population during the next generation. Always, that's always the next. Just it's, we're almost there. Second, individuals can obtain a taste of what lies ahead within the new age through their own spiritual transformation. Uh, initial changes will put the believer on the uh, uh, sadhana, a new path of continued growth and transformation. The sadhana concept was taken straight from Eastern religion and philosophy. Sadhana is an ego transcending spiritual practice. That includes, a, that includes a variety of Hindu, Buddhist, Jain, and Sikh traditions that are followed in order to achieve various spiritual or ritual objectives. Sadhana is done for attaining detachment from worldly things, uh, which can be a goal of a uh, sadhu, uh, a holy man, like an Eastern holy man. Along the way, the, uh, the person committed to this new age, but not really uh, new, since so much of this is just Westerners stealing ancient Eastern ideas and calling it new, uh, the person committed to this will, will see real material improvement in their lives, better health, uh, closer relationships, uh, harder boners, uh, wetter pussies. I don't know, more satisfaction overall. Everything good. Everything gets better. Got to get your vibrations tuned up, bro. Got to get your chakras aligned. Got to get your chi fully charged so you can hadouken. Right? You got to make sure that you're channeling the right frequency and uh, be in touch with the right ancient master aliens or Lemurians or Atlantean root races, fucking wizards and stuff. Be enlightened and whatnot. Not care about driving a new car, wearing designer clothes, or shaving your armpits, or washing your balls with soap, or eating steaks or anything. Just focus on teleporting. Uh, maybe perfecting your Vulcan nerve pinch. Something like that is what New Age Enlightenment is. And I'm not saying that was a perfect description. But I feel like if I was high as fuck on shrooms and listening to the right music and going over all of these concepts in a beautiful natural setting on a sunny day with a bunch of really friendly, attractive, chill hippie folk, I would 100% believe that, oh, guys, I need to dedicate my whole life to this right now. Yes, this is it. Uh, aligning themselves with the uh, holistic health movement, which advocated alternative and natural healing practices such as massage, natural food diets, chiropractic uh, work, acupuncture. Believers in this new age promoted spiritual healing as a way of fixing all of your problems, be they spiritual in nature or not. And this is where this shit always jumps a shark for me. Like, could a lot of this have some validity? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, fuck it, why not? None of us really have uh, you know, any of the answers, which means that you know, a lot of this shit could be true on some level. But to think that this belief system is the cure to all ailments. Come on, tone it down, too extreme. Massage is great. Massage has uh, proven benefits and you know, it feels good. Is organic food better for you than super processed, canned, or box stuff pumped full of preservatives and hollow calories? Yeah, of course. Does meditation have proven benefits? You betcha. Is trying to channel alien wisdom or listening to others channel alien wisdom combined with foregoing Western medicine and trying to cure cancer with fucking celery juice and positive affirmations a good way to live your life? Fuck no. No, it's crazy talk. Now you're trading, uh, relying on what is known for gambling on something that is just gibberish. And that tends to lead to nothing good as many of the followers of Terry Hoffman found out the hard way, the hardest way. Refocusing on the New Age movement now to wrap up this prelude. Uh, unlike a lot of the spirituality of the 60s, this New Age spirituality was something especially appealing to many because you could uh, consume it like you consumed so much else, like a TV show, radio program, or clothes. Uh, you could be New Age by adhering to a special diet, right? Or consulting special experts or buying books and you know having the right crystal collection and such. And please don't reach out to my crystal-loving wife <laughs> with my opinions about any of this. Uh, actually, I, uh, I tease Lindsay Lou who, uh, about her crystals a lot and scared to death. But to be clear, she, she does not actually forego any Western medicine or science to uh, instead trust that crystals will just you know, provide everything she needs. Uh, she is not positive they do anything. She just thinks they might, you know, uh, just like I think that uh, ghosts are probably real. 
Uh, she likes to believe that maybe they help. And so what does it hurt to have them around? And, and I think that's a very healthy form of new age spirituality, uh, even though she doesn't consider herself an, a new age adherent. Uh, anyway, with Spangler's developing new age beliefs and all the parallel belief systems spiraling out of his ideals and the beliefs of his peers, you could be interested in new age spirituality without giving up your possessions and uh, living out of a van like a dirty hippie. In fact, having nice things and being comfortable was a sign that you were growing spiritually, right? Many people who sought new age spirituality in the 70s and 80s wanted a type of belief system that would still let them be successful at work, have families, uh, be members of the community, uh, maybe start a fucking company like Gwyneth Paltrow's group, uh, give them spiritual meaning without having to go to church every Sunday. Terry Hoffman was an early adopter in a lot of these beliefs. She became interested in meditation, metaphysics, hypnotism, a lot of other new age type beliefs that I'll explain here in a bit, starting in the 1950s in the Dallas suburbs where she lived with her first husband and three kids. Terry was charismatic, kind, had a welcoming, charming smile, also seemed harmless, fucking not harmless at all. Uh, it seemed impossible to think that a suburban mother of three could be responsible for anything more intense than a couple of palm reading sessions, maybe some, uh, you know, tarot cards, mild interest in new age spirituality. It seemed in essence, at least at the beginning, like her beliefs were just some bored housewife shit. You know, the kind of thing one would pick up from a silly magazine in the checkout aisle of the grocery store. And that's likely all it was for Terry in the very beginning. But at some point, she either consciously started to want to take advantage of others, uh, believing in this shit to uh, grift them, or she truly began to think she was a very important, prophet-like figure within this belief system. Soon she wasn't just goofing around with some of her friends. Soon Terry was claiming to have abilities that made her completely unlike any other person in the movement any other person on earth, and here we fucking go. Cult, cult, cult. Terry started claiming she could see the past and future, levitate, travel outside of her body, communicate with the deceased, heal the ill, protect students from, you know, psychic and metaphysical harm. Uh, getting others to believe this shit as well made her a messiah figure to them. Not a psychic you could consult to see if you, uh, you know, might have some success in your love life in a few years, but like a powerful godlike deity walking amongst us mortals. Many think Terry Hoffman abused this notion of power. I do. Uh, eventually, she would preach to her followers about how death was meaningless, how they had lived many past lives, their eternal souls were fixed and untouchable. She knew because she could see their souls with the help of a dozen ancient immortal masters, visible and accessible only to her. And to getting her followers to believe that death was not really death, but just the beginning of a new life where adventure awaited and all your problems in this life disappeared, she may have influenced some of her followers to die by suicide and leave her their estates. Uh, she may have also, uh, you know, just straight up murdered some of them outright. Okay, now let's talk about some structure. Uh, to cover the strange story of Terry Hoffman, uh, we'll look next at the allegations against her that she used her brand of New Age spirituality to convince her followers of many things that for sure directly led them to identify less and less with their mortal bodies and real lives and thus make them more open to casually killing themselves. Then we'll take a look at hypnosis, mind control, and meditation to further understand how uh, what she made her followers practice contributed towards their mental deterioration. Uh, next, we'll look at the, uh, why Terry Hoffman wasn't held accountable by the criminal justice system for these deaths and how uh, facilitating a suicide has been dealt with in U.S. criminal courts. It's a complicated charge. Uh, finally, we'll delve into today's Time Suck timeline and follow the cult as it grew from a small-time weird book club of sorts to a, to a group whose beliefs and devotion to their guru would lead to the deaths of 10 people and the disappearance of another. And... Before we go forward, uh, I didn't. I don't normally spotlight a single source for these episodes. We find so many good sources, but this week uh, we owe a huge debt of gratitude to Peter Elkind, an award-winning inve investigative reporter, co-author of the national bestseller "The Smartest Guys in the Room" about the collapse of Enron, also authored "Client 9: The Rise and Fall of Elliot Spitzer," 
and recently republished his first book, The the Death Shift, the true crime story of nurse Janine Jones and the Texas baby murders in 2021. And back in May of 1990, Peter wrote an incredible, uh, sadly now largely forgotten, investigative piece for Texas Monthly called The Curse of the Black Lords. What demons drove so many members of a Dallas New Age cult to kill themselves and leave their money to their guru? And this source is fantastic. Without it, this story would not be worth covering. There just would not be enough important details. But with this source, with the evidence uh, that Peter gathered, holy shit, this is an incredibly entertaining little random slice of American history. So I don't know you, Peter Elkind, but hot damn, you are good at what you do. And I sure as hell appreciate it. Hail Nimrod. Uh, I was crazy tired trying to put the story together, uh, get it recorded in time to uh, drop uh, right when I get back from vacation, uh, recording this uh, right before I leave uh, to go to the airport for vacation. Uh, And Peter's journalism, plus the killer initial research of Sophie Evans, sucked me into this story and motivated me to find more details and, of course, put my own, uh, you know, uh, unusual spin on it all. Uh, So excited to share the rest of all this with you. Uh, One of the central pieces of Terry Hoppin's defense in both investigations and the wrongful deaths that came out of the group member suicides would be that she was a healer accustomed to working with mentally ill people, you know, people more susceptible to suicide, and thus she couldn't help it if they decided to end their lives. If they left all their money to her, well, that was just because they appreciated her efforts to spiritually guide them. Not illegal to be a fucking terrible guru whose followers just kept offing themselves. You know, sometimes you enlighten folks, sometimes you kick the chair out from underneath them. After they put the rope around their own neck. Uh, what am I supposed to do? Not feel their, uh, fill their heads with poisonous, paranoid fucking gobbledygook? Uh, many of the people who died, their family members and prosecutors, would say that Terry was responsible. That Terry's teachings amounted to mind control and hypnosis. Whereby she could convince them to do almost anything. Even taking their own lives. Uh, setting actual mind control aside... I think Terry was an incredibly abusive and manipulative piece of shit, but but not like a literal dark wizard. It is easy for me to see how the conscious development uh, Terry preached could be seen by some as a gateway to suicide. For one thing, again, Terry taught that death doesn't matter because you're just going to be reborn. The more and more her followers consumed that message over and over years, uh, the more followers lost sight of the finality of death. They did not take it seriously. Many of them also began to value their lives uh, of mater- or material existence you know, less and less. You know, it was their, uh, their their spirit that mattered. It was out there on this plane and they were going to connect with it and, and come back to another existence. Also, the concept of karma as taught by Terry was this idea that if bad things are happening to someone, it may be because they are a bad person. So if you have bad things happen to you, it's your fault. I can see how that could lead to people feeling hopeless and frustrated with themselves and seeking a way out. Terry also taught that one's non-physical body, their soul out there in the astral plane, is not subject to influence by your physical body. Uh, that meant that regardless of one's actual disposition or actions, they may still have an evil, non-physical body out there on the astral plane. Ah, oh, damn it. Or several bodies uh, wreaking havoc on other innocent people's lives. Or the reverse, that they have a good non-physical body or bodies, but an evil physical body. And the only way to escape that is through physical death. Uh, not sure how the fuck one physical body has several non-physical bodies, by the way. But her followers referred to other people's bodies, plural. The shit she uh, got them to believe in was so fucking crazy and convoluted. I don't think anyone in her following really understood what they were saying or claiming to believe half the time. Even Terry didn't understand it when she was <laughs> uh, interrogated by prosecutors or by lawyers, you know, uh, later regarding some uh, people signing their estates over to her. She couldn't even answer like her own fucking uh, explain her own dogma because it was just she was just making it up as she went along. And her followers had been following it for so long, they had completely abandoned any reason or critical thinking and just acted like whatever shit she said. Well, it made sense. Uh, These weird concepts were sometimes utilized to create division within Terry's followers, right? Fostering further dependence upon Terry. 
right? Just confuse people. And then some people act like they understand it. And then that, you know, makes them feel better than the other people who don't understand this under the stuff that you can't understand. Ah, trust no one but Terry, you know? Members would be emotionally manipulated towards feelings of guilt and self-loathing. Uh, check out this note from follower Robin Ostot to her best friend, Tamara. I have made the decision to stop talking with you. And looking back at the numerous things that have befallen me, I was able to determine that on many occasions I had talked to you and given you information which was then used against me by your other bodies following our phone call. Can you imagine getting a note like that from your best friend? Wait, wait, what? Why are you mad at me? Oh, cut the shit, Tammy. Your other bodies have been using information I gave you against me. Do you even hear yourself, Robin? That's fucking crazy talk. Oh, right, Tammy. I'm the crazy one. Maybe I'm crazy because of all your other bodies. They won't stop harassing me. For the last time, tell your other bodies to stop following me. Terry also taught her followers uh, that whatever paranoia or bad feelings they felt towards others, those feelings were always justified. Oh boy. I mean, learn to trust your gut, sure, but always assume that any paranoia you're feeling is accurate? Eh, That sounds like a great way to turn a walk towards crazy town into a fucking sprint. Now, sometimes this feels like the world's out to get me. Because it is! Thank you, wise Terry! Thank you for giving me the confidence to ride full throttle into my own delusions! Uh, Even more nefarious and oh-so-cult-like, Terry taught members of conscious development that they should distance themselves from outside influences, of course. Fostering a sense of importance and mission amongst followers, this belief also encouraged isolation and distrust of the outside world, uh, left followers with no one to turn to, no one to trust when things got bad, thanks to combining this with this whole trust your paranoia line of reasoning. In addition to the various harmful ideologies of conscious development, Terry Hoffman's heavy emphasis on meditation may have also encouraged psychological and physical problems ranging from muscle spasms to hallucinations. Did you know that meditation can sometimes be hazardous? I had never read anything uh, like that uh, prior to this episode. It's actually been established in various scientific studies over the past 30 years that meditation has significant and damaging effects on some practitioners in some settings. I mean, an emphasis on some. It does help the vast majority of people. I wish I had more time to do it. uh, I, I like it when I can do it. Uh, While practicing meditation, some people are predisposed to later experiencing involuntary meditation, kind of like an LSD flashback. Uh, Consists of feeling emotionally dead and seeing the environment as unreal, two-dimensional, amorphous. According to one study, which compiled potential health considerations associated with meditation throughout the years, adverse effects on mental health are the most frequently reported negative consequences from meditation. Other practitioners experience paradoxical uh, relaxation-induced anxiety which can aggravate conditions such as schizophrenia, depression, asthma, uh, bleeding ulcers that were previously stable. In fact, one study on the effects of meditation on chronically anxious people, over half the participants indicated their anxiety got worse. (laughs) Uh, The pervasive feeling of disconnection from reality may have also provided a means of easy disconnection between struggling practitioners and their families and or material goods and just their day-to-day lives. You know, too much of a, a good thing can be a really bad thing. I bet when you combine meditation with all of the absolutely bonkers, fear-based, paranoid shit that Terry taught people, the odds of meditation doing more harm than good, you know, went way the fuck up. Uh, refocusing back on allegations that Terry, through messing with her followers' minds in a variety of ways, got them to kill themselves, even if she for sure did that, even if she pushed her followers towards uh, taking their own lives, uh, absolutely, would that be illegal? Could Terry be charged with murder for that? Uh, The Dallas Defense Attorney's Office would say that the links to hypnosis and other mind control techniques could not be sufficiently proven. I mean, no surprise here. Uh, 
But even if they had, is there a legal way to hold someone else accountable for someone's suicide? What if someone told another person over and over again to kill themselves, broke them down, made them believe that suicide was their only way out? Is that person legally chargeable uh, with a crime? Even in a much more clear-cut scenario than Terry's, the answer is sort of. Uh, In American society, uh, authorities have always had difficulty in addressing the implications of one individual influencing another individual's suicide. Manslaughter is the most commonly applied charge for obvious and extensive influence, which results in the suicide of another. But getting that charge to stick is, uh, is very tricky, especially considering how much of a problem suicide is in general in the U.S. Although the U.S. has historically had a high homicide rate, its suicide rate is roughly twice as bad, with over 45,000 suicides in 2020 compared to under 25,000 homicides. Moreover, actual suicide appears to be just the tip of a much larger iceberg. According to the CDC, from 2013, 0.6% of adults in the U.S. had attempted suicide. Percentage-wise, that might not sound like a lot, but that's almost 1.5 million people, not counting kids. 13.6% of teens reported planning suicide. 17% of teens had seriously considered it. And we're talking about tens of millions of people now. For those that do end their lives, they leave grieving families behind, families looking for someone to blame. Sometimes acting on emotion and dealing with massive amounts of grief, they blame people who weren't really responsible. But other times, there is an actual person to blame, someone to at least share some blame. Like in the case of the suicide of Conrad Roy. Remember him? Remember the widely publicized case of Michelle Carter, a Massachusetts teen who was charged in 2016 with involuntary manslaughter after months of directly encouraging her boyfriend, Conrad Roy, to commit suicide over text and phone calls? HBO released a two-part documentary film about this in 2019 called I Love You, Now Die, The Commonwealth versus Michelle Carter. An eight-part miniseries debuted recently on Hulu just earlier this year uh, about this called The Girl from Plainville. 48 Hours, uh, Dateline NBC, other news programs dedicated episodes to this case. Roy and Carter met on family vacations in 2012 when he was 16, she was 15. They lived about 35 miles apart, communicated electronically extensively over the next two and a half years. Although Carter referred to Roy as her boyfriend at the time of his death, they had seen each other in person only a a few times. Both were being treated for depression. Conrad had made suicide attempts before, like when he overdosed on acetaminophen in October of 2012. Prior to July of 2014, Roy had expressed the desire to kill himself and Carter had repeatedly urged him not to, to instead seek help. So that's good, right? Obviously. She encouraged him not to take his own life over and over for almost two years. But then in July of 2014, Carter, then 17, abandoned her efforts to talk Roy out of suicide. She'd had enough of him talking about it. She not only now accepted Roy's desire to kill himself, she urged him to make concrete plans to carry it out. When Roy expressed doubts about the reliability of using exhaust fumes from a vehicle dying by carbon, carbon monoxide poisoning, for example, Carter recommended other methods of suicide, suggested that he research methods of manufacturing carbon monoxide on the internet. And he took her advice. He developed a plan of buying and running a generator inside his enclosed truck cab, ultimately used a water pump to deliver the toxic gas. In the days leading up to Roy's suicide, Carter repeatedly asked him when he was going to carry it out. Even complained that he kept putting it off. She said he needed to do it. She threatened that she would seek counseling for him if he did not proceed to kill himself and urged him to not break a promise. When he hesitated, expressed concern for the grief his act would cause his family, Carter assured him that his family members would be fine. They would accept it. She even promised to provide them emotional support. And then on the evening of July 12th, Roy drove to the Kmart parking lot, ran the water pump inside his truck, poisoned himself with carbon monoxide. Michelle Carter would text a friend about their conversations while Conrad Roy was carrying out this final act. She wrote, his death is my fault. Like, honestly, I could have stopped him. I was on the phone with him and he got out of the truck because it was working and he got scared and I fucking told him to get back in. 
Sam, because I knew he was going to do it all over again the next day. And I couldn't have him live that way. He was living anymore. I, I couldn't, you know, just, uh, just let him. I wouldn't. She literally admits here to pressuring him to kill himself. But is that a crime? Like other American jurisdictions, Massachusetts does not criminalize suicide. Accordingly, Carter could not have been liable as an accomplice or co-conspirator in a crime committed by Roy. Like most American jurisdictions, Massachusetts also has no statute defining incitement to commit suicide as a criminal offense. Uh, Moreover, unlike most American jurisdictions, Massachusetts lacks any statute defining assisting suicide as an offense. Uh, Accordingly, the only way Carter could go to jail for her conduct would be for a homicide offense, which would require proof that she caused Roy's death. After investigators discovered messages on their phones and the contents of their calls, Carter was charged with manslaughter in a Massachusetts uh, juvenile court. Manslaughter generally defined as wanton and reckless conduct causing death. The charge was upheld by the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court, and in 2017, Carter was convicted and then sentenced to a 15-month prison term. The Supreme Judicial Court found that Carter's alleged speech acts probably satisfied the requirement of uh, recklessness because a reasonable person would have realized that they could have influenced Roy to kill himself by saying what Michelle Carter did say. A lot of us probably agree with that reasoning. Intuitively, based on public backlash against her, uh, Michelle Carter's uh, role in bringing about Conrad's uh, suicide seems worthy of some condemnation. Some punishment appears warranted, but some form of murder doesn't that set a strange legal precedent? I mean, if Conrad Roy killed himself, how can Michelle Carter also be said to have killed him? Even if we conclude that Carter did kill Roy, what kind of homicide should she really be held liable for? While the court convicted her of manslaughter, does her conduct really appear to fit the offense elements of that crime? Manslaughter in Massachusetts defined as the reckless or negligent killing of a human being. In turn, murder is defined as the intentional killing of a human being. But Michelle Carter didn't kill anyone, intentional or not. Only Conrad Roy did. It wasn't even Michelle's idea for Conrad to die. It was Conrad's. He'd been talking about it for years. Also, if you do take the perspective that she did kill him, then why did the judge sentence her to only 15 months in custody? I don't know. I don't like what she did. Not at all. Uh, Just not sure should she have been, uh, just not sure, excuse me, she should have been legally punished for it. It's immoral, but illegal. I don't agree with that charge. Uh, Elsewhere in the legal system, this dichotomy between murder and suicide has also been hard to untangle in other cases. In most states, participants in another suicide risk prosecution for the lesser crime of assisting suicide, but only a few statutes prohibit encouragement alone. And courts have often required tangible aid in applying these few statutes. One thing to to be there and to to actively help, like Dr. Kevorkian, quite another to say something over the phone or, or, or send a text. In one recent case, the Minnesota Supreme Court struck down a provision permitting liability for encouraging suicide as a violation of the First Amendment, right? Legally, it's just also very murky. Now, thinking about the First Amendment, uh, is it someone's right to encourage someone to commit suicide, just like it's their right to say that they don't like a certain politician or political party? And then in thinking about the free will of the person who has died, shouldn't they be able to end their lives of their own volition? Isn't it their decision and their decision alone? And thus, no one else should be held responsible. Or another angle to look at all this uh, is just considering suicide an act that takes one out of the realm of the ability to make decisions, big decisions for oneself. In other words, uh, mentally incompetent. And are the people who may encourage them then taking advantage of someone who is struggling mentally? And should there be some kind of legal punishment for doing that? That reminds me of some of the ethical arguments we covered in our episode on Dr. Kevorkian. He certainly believed that at least on some fundamental level, people should be free to choose whether they live or die. He focused on people with terminal illnesses, but I think he would argue in general that suicide is a deeply personal choice that an individual should be able to make for themselves whether they are ill or not. Health law scholar Susan Steffen 
has observed, has observed that as a, a society, we are more likely to accept the choice to die as rational insofar as the person so choosing is elderly, terminally ill, in physical pain, or disabled. From a libertarian standpoint, however, individuals are under no obligation to measure the worth of their lives by their own or others' net happiness over time. Their autonomy includes freedom to choose and constrained only by the liberty rights of others uh, pursue their own conception of what is good. Meaning that from a libertarian perspective, at least suicide isn't an injury to anyone innocent and no one can then be found responsible for that harm. Uh, What to do about suicide and those who may pressure others to kill themselves via suicide. Such an interesting legal argument. Should we be minimizing danger and harm, making inciting someone's suicide illegal, or should we be ensuring everyone's liberty, meaning that you are allowed to say whatever regarding what someone else does? And that if that includes listening to you, telling them to kill themselves, the responsibility falls on them to act wisely and to listen to you or not listen to you. But if you ensure everyone's liberty, meaning you don't find anyone criminally responsible for assisting their suicide, uh, doesn't that open the door for people like Terry Hoffman to take advantage of this legality and do what it sure seems as shit uh, like she did? I don't know. Uh, At this moment, I do lean towards allowing, encouraging someone to commit suicide to be legal. Horrible, unethical, uh, sure, uh, but, you know, legal, even if that allows the Terry Hoffmans of the world to get away with some monstrous acts. Uh, Generally, I am in favor of less laws. But Terry Hoffman, she may have gotten away with a lot more than pressuring followers to take their own lives after willing uh, all of their assets to her. Also, as we'll see in the upcoming timeline, while some of Terry's followers, like the Goodmans, her husband, Don Hoffman, uh, Robin Ostot, Mary Levinson did kill themselves. Were the others around Terry Hoffman, uh, you know, actually uh, murdered some of them, like Glenn Cooley, her second husband, or Louise Watson, the housekeeper of one of Terry's most devoted followers, who did not want to go uh, on the trip she went on when she died? Or Devereaux Cleaver, the 14-year-old uh, who drowned uh, in uh, questionable circumstances on a trip to Hawaii? Or Charles Southern Jr., a follower of Terry's who is still missing to this day? whose family discovered a Nigerian symbol for death in his apartment after he went missing. Or maybe Jill Bounds, a woman who admittedly terrified of Terry, who was definitely murdered in her bed and whose pages from her diary were uh, missing from the crime scene. A few of them. Not all of them. It's all very suspicious. Okay, enough teasing now. Let's begin my favorite part of this episode. Terry's big ol' time suck timeline. Right after today's mid-show sponsor break. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If you suddenly had an extra hour show up in your day every day, what would you do with it? Work out, sleep, read a book, play Fortnite, call your mom, take judo lessons, finally watch all the episodes of Shameless. A lot of us spend a lot of our time wishing we had more time. But why? Time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The bad news is that you're not going to get that 25th hour. But what you can probably do is reprioritize where you spend some of your time. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it with your time. This year, my health is more important to me than cranking out another stand-up special as fast as possible. So I canceled a tour, sacrificed that income, and decided to spend a lot of the time I just got back working out more, resting more, relaxing more, and enjoying time with family, friends, and just myself. And I'm so glad I did. I feel better than I have in a long time. And my BetterHelp therapist, Debbie, was very helpful in getting me to make the decision to pull back. Thank you, Debbie. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash TimeSuck today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P 
com slash timesuck. After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if you've learned anything, it's that there's always a catch. So when you hear that Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, you're probably thinking, what's the catch? Well, there isn't one, really. They cut the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. It's pretty simple. Mint Mobile is here to rescue you with premium wireless plans for just 15 bucks a month and no catch. All plans come with unlimited talk and text, plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. And you can use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all your existing contacts over. And in addition to saving money, like over a 50% price drop from what I was paying before, the network quality, in my experience, is better than it was with my old service provider. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash timesuck. That's mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Thanks to Rocket Money, I canceled a membership to a gym I used to go to where I continued to pay a monthly membership for a couple of years after I stopped going. I didn't even recognize the charge. Rocket Money found it though, and it was canceled. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. Rocket Money will even try to negotiate lower bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is submit a picture of your bill and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. They'll deal with customer service for you. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. That's rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. Rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. I still love peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, but I'd stopped eating them almost entirely a while back because the bread on top of the sugar from the jelly made me so sleepy. All those carbs causing me to want to take a nap after eating them. Enter Hero Bread. Hero Bread takes the fear of carbs out of bread, but still leaves you with that delicious bread taste. Hero Bread has zero to one gram of net carbs, zero grams of sugar, and it's high in fiber. It's also delicious and flavorful. The soft, fluffy experience you love when enjoying a savory breakfast burrito or mouth-watering cheeseburger. There is something for every craving, including sliced bread loaves, buns, and tortillas. And there are monthly small batch drops of indulgent favorites, like the two grams of net carbs Hero Croissant or the one gram of net carbs Hero Cheddar Biscuit. I had a loaf of Hero Classic White Bread delivered last week. Soft, fluffy, and delicious. Five grams of protein per slice, and it's high in fiber. And the best part? Hero Bread doesn't taste healthy. It tastes like bread. It's great. Don't give up on being a breadhead. Hero Bread is offering 10% off your order. Go to hero.co and use code TIMESUCK at checkout. That's TIMESUCK at H-E-R-O dot C-O. Thanks for listening to those uh, sponsors, Meat Sacks. Now let's get back to the life uh, and, and the strange, often dark times of Terry Hoffman. Strap on those boots, soldier. We're marching down a time suck timeline. Terry Hoffman is born March 21st, 1938. Born into poverty in Fort Stockton, little 8,000-ish person town, around 3,000 people when Terry was born. 
uh, not really near any cities of note in West Texas, and she spent her early summers picking cotton in the stifling heat. And it does get hot in Fort Stockton. 117 degrees Fahrenheit is the record high for June. Uh, her father was an alcoholic. <clears throat> Excuse me, her mom suffered from tuberculosis. Uh, she had a little sister who was stillborn. Maybe because of a rough introduction to the world, she created a, a little bit of fantasy to escape a bad situation. Terry would claim that something would happen to her in early childhood that would reveal the kind of spiritual gifts she had. Or she just made all the shit up later to give her childhood some kind of, uh, I was destined for spiritual greatness, uh, you know, backstory and cred. She said that when she was four years old, relaxed under a shade tree, uh, when three, three men in splendid robes appeared before her, told her that she could do anything, uh, be anything she wanted. If she wanted it badly enough, that all she had to do was think about God. They also said that only she could see them. Hmm. Uh, weird that she would be able to do or be anything she wanted, and then she would uh, just choose to be a, a small-time cult leader. And the main thing she would do uh, would be convince followers to make her the sole beneficiary of their will and then kill themselves. I mean, if you could do or be anything, wouldn't you uh, become something better, doing something great? Around 1947, at the age of nine, Terry gets sent to a Lutheran orphanage in Round Rock, Texas, now a suburb of Austin. After her mom dies uh, uh, in her, of tuberculosis and her father is then unable or unwilling to care for her. And then according to what she would uh, tell followers, those visitors from before started happening again or started appearing again. Uh, I don't believe for a fucking second that she uh, thought any of this shit up as a kid. Strongly assuming she made up all this shit after she did a bunch of new age reading as an adult. Uh, these mythic figures first taught her to pray to them. There were 12 of them in all. They were known as the masters, of course. Uh, she would also later remember a Lutheran nun, a German woman who told her about the elements, fire, water, air, earth, ether. Is this woman one of the masters? Not sure. This is never really made clear in sources. Not that it really matters since uh, she has for sure put all this shit out of her ass. Uh, the magical woman told her about the Akashic records, which exist only in the spiritual realm. Oh, the Akashic records. This is a, this is a big new age topic. The Akashic records comes out of the theosophy. It, it's something that comes straight out of 19th century theosophical lore that would greatly influence the later new age movement. Uh, weird that she would think up something like that as a kid, uh, that she would think up uh, something that she would then read about in her early adulthood, uh, the great charlatan, I mean, theosophist, uh, Madame Lavatsky first introduced the Sanskrit term Akasha into theosophy. It means space or sky in traditional Indian cosmology. And by, by 1899, the Akashic records was a concept firmly embedded into theosophical lore by another theosophist, Charles Webster Ledbe Ledbeater, originally a priest in the Church of England. In his theosophical writings, uh, Ledbeater was immensely influenced by Blavatsky. He practically worshipped her. Anyway, he wrote that the Akashic records were a compendium of all universal events, thoughts, words, emotions, intent, uh, ever to have occurred in the past, present, or future in terms of all entities and life forms, not just human. They are believed by theosophists to be encoded in a non-physical plane of existence known as the mental plane, the most important and powerful magical book of all time. Uh, Terry believed that she could reach these records through meditation and that they would show her all past, present, and future knowledge. So fucking super cool. Gosh dang. Uh, this magic dream nun also taught Terry about reincarnation. This made Terry, who was still angry with the world for her sister's stillbirth, feel better thinking that her sister would just have another chance at a happier life. Also made her feel like the children who bullied her at the orphanage would have to suffer through several more shitty lives on earth. Karmic punishment for hurting her. So she's really developing a spiritual belief system here that wrongs all the rights of her childhood. How convenient. Over time, Terry became convinced at the orphanage, or again, as she later said as an adult when she made all the shit up, that she herself was the reincarnation of St. Teresa of Avila, Avila, uh, one of the Roman Catholic Church's most famous mystics. 
Teresa of Avila was a 16th century Spanish noblewoman who felt uh, called to the convent life, big on mystical prayer, on communicating directly with the deity, activating a special rapport, kind of like uh, the channeling that Terry would later claim to do. In 1949, after two years at the orphanage, Terry, now age 11, she gets adopted by a Dallas couple who had lost their daughter to tubercul- tuberculosis. A lot of fucking tuberculosis in Texas in the uh, mid-20th century, apparently. Uh, they gave her a new name, Terry Lee Benson. Also, the first normal home she had known since her birth in 1938. And she wouldn't last long in this new home. Uh, just a few years later, she was in junior high when she met a young truck driver named John Wilder. He was an 18-year-old, six-foot-one high school dropout, earning 85 cents an hour. And her new mom called him a thug, not good enough for a daughter. Also, fucking creepy. <laughs> He's going after... Junior high kid, Terry felt smothered by her adoptive mother's attention and would soon run away. How how dare she not want her daughter to date an adult while she's in junior high? Terry would marry John Wilder May 2nd, 1953 in Durant, Oklahoma, the closest place to Dallas that a 15-year-old could get married at the time. Uh, Terry had just barely turned 15. She and her new husband then moved back to just outside of Dallas and Terry dropped out of high school. She and John would have their first child in 1954, just 18 months after their wedding. They had a girl, Kathy, followed by a son named Kenneth in 1958 and a daughter, Virginia, in 1963. Like many women of the time living in rural Texas, Terry occupied herself with her children and some gardening. Uh, she bragged about grafting several varieties of apples to the same tree trunk. The couple had a farm near Redbird Airport, now known as Dallas Executive Airport, where Terry and John spent a couple quiet years with her growing family. But soon, Terry grew bored of being a stay-at-home mom. She wished she had uh, finished high school. She yearned for something more. She's very curious. She uh, began to get very spiritual. Uh, this would all lead her to uh, some unconventional places. Around 1954, not long after the birth of her first child, when she was just 16, she just started meeting with a group of women who happened to be into shit like meditating and discussing metaphysics, the origin and structure of the universe, the nature of truth, the meaning of existence. As time passed, Terry became more interested in all of this. Led to an interest in the occult, into occult literature uh, that would become an obsession, lead to all kinds of new age beliefs. At some point during the early years of their marriage, the Wilders moved to a modest three-bedroom house in Farmer's Branch, uh, the Dallas suburb where Terry will eventually start her cult. And her life began to change. Terry was becoming infatuated with the writings of fucking insane wackadoodle. Uh, This guy's done a lot of damage. (laughs) Edgar Cayce, the sleeping prophet. Uh, the psychic, the America's greatest known psychic from the 20th century, uh, fucking presidents like this guy, even though he fucking blew it on so many predictions. Uh, she got into groups like Silva Mind Control Incorporated. Edgar Casey was uh, a one-time Sunday school teacher from Kentucky with little formal education, of course, who began faith healing in the 1920s using a combination of spiritual readings and homeopathic medicine. And soon he'd consider himself a clairvoyant. Some religious scholars consider him to be the, the true father of the new age movement. Uh, 1925, he settled in Virginia Beach, where he established a hospital of sorts in 1928 and the Association for Research and Enlightenment in 1931. Uh, He also made a lot of prophecies, right, including the destruction of New York City and California. Still waiting on those, motherfucker. Uh, Claimed to be able to recall past lives, promoted belief in the existence of a a great civilization in Atlantis some 12,000 years ago. Uh, He stole that belief from the teachings of Madame Levasky. I, I would consider her to be the true founder of the New Age movement. Uh, not a fan of her, but she should get credit for that. Uh, just wasn't known by that name, right? Her her th- theosophy definitely became a uh, uh, new age. New age sprang out of it. A lot of concepts would be added to the movement long after her death. But uh, she's the one who I think started the new age ball rolling down the hill more than anyone else. Uh, Casey would write, when there is the thought or the activity of the body in any particular environment, this very activity makes for the impressions upon the soul. As to the records made by such an activity, they are written upon what is known as time or space. Ah, word salad. 
Uh, it was by reading these records in time and space that would allow him to grift, I mean, help people. 1934, uh, while given a reading to a 28-year-old freight agent, Casey tried to define these records further. Not only did he discuss what the Akashic records were, but he explained how they were written, clarified how an individual could gain access to that information. Apparently, any type of endeavor, you know, whether action, thought, desire, or deed, creates activity, uh, a kind of activity of uh, vibration. This vibration produces a mark upon what Casey called the skein of space and time and is somehow permanently identified with the individual responsible, right? It's entered into the fucking big uh, server up in space. Although unseen is the type of energy that is evident to a sensitive, uh, as evident as the printed word is to the sighted person. So this asshole is who I have to thank for thousands and thousands of wackadoodles who just won't shut the fuck up about vibrations and frequencies today. Go watch a video, any video made by someone claiming to be a light worker or a star seed. And uh, maybe just have a little counter. Just count how many times they talk about vibrations and frequencies. Uh, uh, magnetism also comes up a lot. Uh, Casey explained to his wife, Gertrude, in another reading that it was very possible for anyone attempting to read the records, a psychic, a sensitive, uh, you know, uh, to misinterpret the information. Of course, he knew what the magical, invisible shit said for sure, but other dickheads would get it wrong. Right? It's the same old story. You know, you know what? Fuck all the late night research I do. I, I did here for this episode. Fuck critical thinking. I should just join the new age movement. Uh, with all the wackadoodles I've broken down on well over a, a hundred different, you know, uh, segments of the secret suck and the ones I've talked about here on time suck. I, I know the language, right? I could write some books full of stuff that sounds super cool and positive and enlightened, but doesn't really mean anything. And I can start giving seminars and shit and never have to worry about anyone proving that I uh, fucked up on some, uh, you know, a source or, you know, didn't get something right because all the shit's been made up for the past couple centuries. Apparently, Casey said, perceiving the Akashic database is unavoidably shaded by the mental experience and background of the person reading the information, unless their intent is totally selfless and based only in helping others. In other words, two individuals could acquire very different interpretations from the same records because of their own belief systems, backgrounds, experiences, and personal motives. So, uh, in real other words, the Akashic records don't mean fucking anything. (laughs) If, If everyone looking at them comes to different conclusions, cool. Uh, We do need to suck Edgar Casey someday. I mean, his story is fascinating. Uh, Pretty soon, Terry would start to borrow some concepts uh, directly plagiarized from Casey, uh, present them as her own metaphysical teachings. Uh, Other concepts uh, she would steal directly came from Silva Mind Control Incorporated. Oh, the Silva Method is a self-help and meditation program developed by another maniac, Jose Silva. Claims to increase an individual's abilities through relaxation, development of higher brain functions, psychic abilities such as clairvoyance. Silva, uh, quote unquote, developed it. And by developed it, I mean made it up in 1944 after he developed an interest in psychology to see if it could help him increase his children's IQ, which it didn't. Uh, he thought it did, though. After experimenting and becoming convinced that his daughter uh, suddenly was clairvoyant, Silva decided to learn more about the development of psychic abilities. And, uh, uh, and then Casey uh, claimed, it, like Casey, claimed to be a psychic. He was America, uh, oh, sorry, back to Casey. Uh, America's most prominent psychic uh, of the 20th century. But I already said that, sorry. <laughs> I, threw, I threw that in a bad spot by notes. Silva, back to Silva. He used his psychic abilities on his family members and friends before launching a program about how to develop them commercially in the 1960s. The techniques of his program aimed to reach and sustain a state of mental functioning called alpha state. Oh, fuck yeah. Where brainwave frequency is 7 to 14 hertz. Daydreaming, the transition to sleep, alpha states. 
He can get you there all the time. Selfish program, uh, Silva's program claimed to train people to enter certain brain states of enhanced awareness and stay there. Also claimed to have developed several systematic mental processes to use while in these states, allowing a person to, say, uh, uh, mentally project with a specific intent. According to Silva, once the mind is projected, a person can allegedly view distant objects, right? Remote viewing uh, locations, connect with higher intelligence, channeling ancient masters, wise fucking aliens for guidance. How do you how do you know when you channel you don't get a dipshit alien? Why does that never come up? You know, maybe like a two years into channeling, someone's like, oh, oh no, the fucking alien's been talking to me. He's a fucking moron. Uh, the information received by the uh, projected mind is then said to be perceived as thoughts, images, feelings, smells, taste, and sound by the mind. This information obtained in this manner can be acted upon to solve problems. And again, it's vague. None of this means anything. So basically, his method is based uh, on utter madness. No one has ever conclusively demonstrated getting even a single IQ point smarter by studying and employing this stuff. I bet a lot of people have gotten dumber. Uh, Terry would get very into all of this. As she became more obsessed with all this, what the fuck are you talking about? Craziness. Uh, she also found a new environment to unleash her obsession on in the mid-60s, when she's in her mid-20s. Uh, the wealthy, bored women who met at the Brookhaven Country Club, not far from her home, and they would discuss mysticism. And these women soon came to love Terry. They ate her mystical shit right up. They licked her mystical puss. Uh, soon, Terry began to attract a devout circle of admirers within that group. Uh, to them, she was far more than a housewife who had memorized a bunch of theosophical nonsense and also made up a bunch of stories about talking to invisible masters when she was a kid. Uh, she was a messenger of God. And now people started to seek her metaphysical help. During the late 60s, she later claimed she helped a young man kick his drug habit through uh, solely her guided meditation and prayer. He begged her to share her power with his friends, or so the story goes. So now Terry, when she's around 30 years old, she starts holding weekly evening meditation sessions, uh, initially attended by about uh, 20 high school students. That's, that's great, you know, shaping young minds. Uh, she holds these sessions somewhere on Southern Methodist University's campus, uh, only about two miles from her house. These early students of hers get two things uh, that all sensitive adolescents crave. Instead of having to figure shit out for themselves, Terry is telling them how the world works. Instead of having to suffer judgment or critique like they would do at a traditional church, uh, in a Western Abrahamic, Abrahamic religion church, you uh, accept them unconditionally. Terry also charged them nothing for the meditation sessions, not the early ones. She steered many of them away from drugs, from dangerous macrobiotic diets. Man, what a shame. No drugs in the 60s? Ah, she fucking ruined their youth. She ruined the greatest time to party in the history of America for these kids. Uh, she also indoctrinated them in uh, her continually evolving theology, which combined elemental and theosophical New Age beliefs with Christian ideas about angels and divine battles, right? Take a little bit of what you're used to, combine it with a bunch of shit that makes you feel good. Uh, the archangels, Michael, in charge of the fire element, Raphael in charge of air, Gabriel of water, Ariel of earth, could offer them strength and protection. Death, her printed, uh, her printed lesson said, was nothing. The result of noble death is rebirth. Uh, the world worked according to the law of karma, which uh, her interpretation said that uh, ugliness begets ugliness, beauty begets beauty. One who lived a good life would be able to choose the body and environment in which they would be reincarnated. Those who led unhappy lives would pay a karmic debt for past deeds. Uh, you get a shitty body next time around. Uh, she would write, uh, we can be sure that the people who have been killed in volcanic eruptions and dire catastrophes deserve these violent deaths. And that they have been reborn in these places to fulfill their destiny. They reaped as they sowed in past lives. Yep, everyone getting what they deserve. Uh, a lot of psychologists call a version of this the just world hypothesis. I remember studying that and hating it in psych classes over 20 years ago. 
Uh, it's a very juvenile and frankly, just fucking disgusting way to look at the world. Very self-serving. It allows you to never feel bad for anyone who ever suffers misfortune. They deserved it. Good things happen to good people. Bad things happen to bad people, period, right? So be good and life will be good. That girl you heard about uh, getting uh, gang raped, don't feel bad for her. She had, a, she had a fucking shitty soul debt she needed to repay. She fucking deserved it. In her last life, she was a dickhead. Uh, all the Jews who died in the Holocaust all deserved it. Don't let the Holocaust docs get you down, right? That was just justice. Serial killers kind of doing the Lord's work. Since all their victims, even the kids, you know, fucking deserve to be sexually tortured and killed and shit. Why is Putin incredibly wealthy? He is so good, or at least was in his past few lives. And now he's, he's reaping uh, what he sowed. Why did Peter Nygaard get away with raping for five decades? He's a good guy. But then he did something bad, maybe in the seventies that led to his arrest. I don't know. It's a fucking idiotic belief system employed by simplistic morons with underdeveloped senses of empathy. Uh, by the late 60s, Terry had started a group called Conscious Development of Body, Mind, and Soul in Dallas now, and she's accepting love offerings for lessons in her private consultations. By love offering, she means pay up, motherfucker. No more giving away her genius insights and wisdom for free. Don't call it payments, call it love offerings. That would be like uh, 50 bucks, uh, then 100 bucks for these offerings. If uh, people paid enough, sometimes, you know, pay more. They could, members could get taped lessons instructing them on Terry's beliefs. She's, uh, she's selling taped lessons now, like she's, Fucking low rent, L. Ron Hubbard. Uh, this is your first lesson. First degree lesson one begins. It is yours in a special way since the knowledge contained within is said, uh, is sorry, the knowledge contained within it is sacred, secret, and mysterious. This information has been treasured and carefully guarded since ancient times. For knowledge gives its possessor power. By being exposed to the teachings of the masters, you will not only become aware of the truths, the words I'm emphasizing are capitalized. Uh, in her thing, which others rarely possess, you will also learn how to use and control energies few have mastered. Oh, fuck yeah, bro. Master that energy. Woo! Hadouken! Hadouken! Start throwing around those energy balls and shit. Things are starting to get weird. It's going to get so much weirder. Uh, Terry also developed a little jewelry business with a metaphysical twist. Taught her followers that certain gems and crystals, when properly selected and electrically charged by her, possessed uh, protective and healing properties. Their vibrations became so great and powerful. Uh, she began urging her followers to buy handmade silver rings, necklaces, bracelets. The more expensive an item she taught, the more power it contained, obviously. Oh, you want that $50 quartz pendant, Becky? <laughs> okay. But, you know, if you get that, I mean, I mean, you're going to be barely able to see into the future with that one. Uh, but that $1,500 jade bracelet, oh, my. You can clearly see the future while levitating in the astral plane. I mean, if you, if you meditate hard enough, of course. Uh, one could tell how tightly various uh, followers embraced Terry's teachings by counting the number of magic rings and necklaces and shit that they would wear. If my wife, Lindsay, ever dives this hard into crystals, I'm throwing them away and I'm going to commit her to an institution for a while. She won't. Uh, Terry's little group of increasingly devoted followers steadily grew into something that sure uh, looked like a cult with Terry as its leader. One young man who joined the sessions in 1970 recalled that some students would bring special meditation mats, uh, sometimes bath mats or scraps of carpet. So by special, I mean shitty, to Terry's home in Farmer's Branch. Terry would lead them in meditation into a state much like a hypnotic trance, tell them they were entering a higher plateau of spiritual development. They are seeing the temples of the world's spiritual masters. Christ was a master. So was Buddha, uh, Lao Tzu, Muhammad, other ancient religious founders, prophets, and teachers. There they are. There he's fucking standing on the tree. And that guy's over there on the cliff. That guy's, uh, I don't know, riding a fucking unicorn in, under that waterfall. 
Uh, during these meditations, Terry would lead her students on a tour of the temples of, of these higher realms, astral for the emotions, mental for logic, ether for the highest realm where the soul itself would reside. I always thought the soul was on the astral plane, <laughs> like, like, like an idiot. It's, uh, it's in the ether plane. Uh, she would describe the temples like a tour guide and the students would add descriptive touches as if they too were looking at brick and mortar buildings, which they often thought they were. She was getting good. The power of suggestion, fucking strong in this new age Jedi. Whatever uh, they said about the temple, they were touring. Terry would agree. It was like an improv game. Uh, taking a page, a page out of old Edgar Casey's book, Terry instructed her students on the Akashic Records. Uh, she said the Lutheran church invisible nun woman had talked to her about as a kid, right? Uh, the record she told her students gave her knowledge of their past, present, future lives, uh, of their love lives. If a follower asked, she would look into the records, see if her student had found their soulmate or not. Usually they did, but one young couple was devastated to hear, sorry, Akashic Records, <laughs> not showing that you two are soulmates. Uh, this poor uh, girl would later say, we took that very seriously. We'd sit around and talk about it. Well, we love each other, but we're not soulmates. <laughs> Terry also used her following to, uh, to brag about her power. She said she, uh, that she would levitate in bed at night, that her husband would wake up to find her just floating up towards the fucking ceiling. Weird that she couldn't do that in front of the uh, followers though. Uh, also said she could heal the sick. Also kind of weird that she never healed any of them, huh? Uh, once she said her son, Kenneth, who was on a picnic with one group, uh, dislocated his thumb so painfully that her students could see the bones draining against the skin. But don't ask which students it was. Don't even worry about it. Terry said that she didn't want her boy to see a doctor. So she just healed him through powerful meditation said, you know, just really focused and just bent that bone right back into place. So that's a, another cool story, bro. Uh, Terry even claimed that she could protect her students from harm. One evening, she told a Hillcrest High School student that his girlfriend was about to die in a car accident. Only an emergency meditation session that you got to give me some love offerings for could save her. After the session, Terry smiled serenely. <laughs> she'd done it. By God, she'd done it. She'd, uh, she'd averted that accident. Phew! What a close one. What a good grift to use on the gullible. Tell them something bad is about to happen, right? But you can stop it. Then stop the thing that you just made up. And then when the thing that was never going to happen, because it's nonsense, uh, you know, it doesn't happen, uh, then you get to tell them that you saved their life. Ah, it's a great way to save lives. The easiest way. You don't have to like uh, leave your yoga mat. After Jimi Hendrix died on September 18th, 1970, she tells her group that his soul needs a boost to reach a higher plane. <laughs> yeah, fucking Hendrix needed Terry Grifter to kick him up to the ether plane or some shit. Uh, she said that Jimmy's drug use had brought him bad karma, but he deserved better because he had made such beautiful music. Okay, that makes me like her a little bit more. You know, she enjoyed Hendrix. Uh, the group meditated and soon a, a, a beatific look swept over Terry's face. She said, Jimmy's in the room. Can't you hear him? And the students said that they could and they convinced themselves they could. No one wanted, no one wanted to seem like a spiritual Luddite who couldn't hear dead Hendrix fucking shredding during the meditation session. Uh, Terry would also claim to reincarnate or see reincarnated versions of people and her students. She would uh, she would turn off the room lights, have a student hold a piece of tinted plastic over their face, and she'd shine a flashlight on it and be like, mm, "Yeah, uh huh, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, you're uh, you are uh, this uh, fucking knight of knight templar or a Chinese sage or some shit." Uh, some of her students, thank God, became skeptical of all this fucking horseshit around this time. It was getting too far out for them. Uh, her husband, John Wilder. Uh, also not buying this shit. So that, so I guess she lied about levitating in bed in front of him. What? John would later tell some journalists that he never believed in any of her powers. He said her increasingly crazy behavior led to their divorce. 
Yeah, I bet. Wilder says he couldn't go along with stuff like the idea of breaking up teenage romances uh, because they weren't soulmates. Uh, uh, Terry's work with adults was becoming a point of contention as well. She was selling lessons in spiritual development that he knew were just plagiarized uh, from, you know, some shit she read. Equally hard to stomach for John Wilder was uh, some of Terry's disciples followed her like puppies. It was just creepy. Sandra Cleaver being one of them. Wilder remembered Sandy telling him that she thought of Terry as Jesus. He also remembered uh, Sandy giving Terry a tremendous amount of jewelry, a necklace, a bracelet, rings. He told Sandy to take the jewelry back. And then when, she, when he did that, she, he said that she got down on her knees and begged him to let Terry have it. Then there was Glenn Cooley, a student at North Texas State University who always tried to sit next to Terry at meetings so he could hold her hand during meditation sessions. That weirded him out. Uh, Terry, of course, would say that her husband, he was just jealous of her power, of her growing success. Ugh. Uh, Terry beats uh, John to the divorce punch uh, Files for divorce December 28th, 1970 They've been married for 17 years uh, he's, he's holding her back She needs to spiritually evolve more That's what she says uh, Soon after she is taken by sheriff's deputies To Parkland Hospital for a psychiatric evaluation uh, Wilder and her mom uh, Her adopted, adopted mom signed the committal papers uh, She would insist that her release meant she was fine right? But in her subsequent divorce uh, She would lose custody of her young son and daughter under the divorce decree granted March 23rd, 1971, Terry did retain custody of her firstborn, Kathy, now a teenager, her 1968 Mustang, an assortment of stocks, a uh, shotgun, rifle, and a pistol. And I'm sure fucked on crystals and weird books. Uh, John kept the house, two youngest kids, the furniture, family bank accounts. Uh, within mere months, Terry, now 33, marries Glenn Cooley, that uh, young student of hers, always trying to hold her hand during meditations. Uh, the cult leader marries the disciple. So that tracks. Uh, they go to New, New Mexico for their ceremony. Uh, I'm sure it was like on a fucking cliff or something uh, at some, where some ley lines intersect at some vortex. Uh, then they returned to Dallas, bought a house at 4163 Dunhaven Drive. I actually uh, looked up a picture of this house uh, on Google Maps and it fucking creeped me out. Maybe just because this stuff was in my head and it was late at night. And I'm like, I don't even want to look at the picture of this house anymore. Uh, they began revising, expanding the conscious development literature. Terry, like a good prophet type, wanted the world to know that she had the answers. Uh, she needed missionaries for that. And no one would be a better missionary than devoted follower Sandra Cleaver. Uh, Sandy was uh, the opposite of Terry in many ways. Terry was plump. Sandy was slender. Terry grew up poor. Sandy, through a skip generation trust, uh, uh, inherited a bunch of wealth. While Terry never graduated from high school, but grew up streetwise, Sandy grew up naive, but attended an exclusive girls' school in Birmingham, graduated in three and a half years from DePaul University in Indiana, uh, took out a double major, earned nothing but A's and B's. The women did have some stuff in common. Uh, Terry's mother died of tuberculosis. Sandy's mom committed to a mental hospital by 1951 when Sandy was 12. So both, you know, uh, lacked their mothers in their uh, teen years. Uh, Terry's sister died at birth. Sandy's sister, Susan Devereaux uh, Betty, died in a car accident in 1961 at the age of 17. Most importantly, both women uh, super interested in the mystical powers of jewelry and all things metaphysical. Uh, and like Terry, Sandy was starting to look at the possibility of a divorce from her husband, Chuck Cleaver. Sandy had met Chuck Cleaver at DePaul. Uh, Chuck was uh, hard not to notice. He played center for the school basketball team. He and Sandy were a good match, both thin, good-looking, quiet, serious, intelligent. Sandy's fervent intensity played well against Chuck's easygoing manner. They married fresh out of college in 1960, settled in Dallas, living at 4434 Manning Lane. Neighbors talked about dinners at the Cleavers, where they were less likely to discuss sports or the weather uh, than to analyze a popular book or song. 1964, they had a daughter whom they named Susan Devereux Cleaver, in uh, memory of Sandy's sister. 
They were spending a good bit of Sandy's money. It would be years before Chuck uh, got the kind of high-powered job his neighbors felt his abilities uh, merited. Sandy had money to spare. They were living a nice life in their young married life. Uh, she also had excess energy, which she burned off uh, you know, on community and church projects. And that would change in 1966, though, when Sandy's father died. He had retired from an engineering professorship at Purdue University, was piloting a single-engine beechcraft on its final landing approach when the engine failed. Sandy told Chuck she wished she could have spoken with her father just one last time, but there were so many loose ends, so many questions she wanted answers to. Wanting answers to these questions would lead Sandy on a spiritual quest that would end so badly for her. Over the next few years, Sandy became a student of the supernatural to help her deal with feelings of loneliness and grief. She didn't have a mom. Uh, you know, her, uh, her maid, Louise Watson, whom she loved, was the closest thing to a maternal figure. Uh, didn't have a father now. Uh, she was worried she'd be a bad mother to Devereux. She wanted advice, troubled by the deaths of loved ones. She was not comforted by traditional uh, religion. So Sandy began to attend meditation and new age treatment sessions. She took up Silva mind control, that gobbledygook, uh, you know, practiced vegetarianism, homeopathic medicine, visited quack doctors in Mexico who claimed they could cure, uh, you know, diagnose and cure illnesses uh, via cosmic airwaves and strange pills. Like Terry, she believed that certain jewels possessed healing properties and fearful of letting herself go and shielded by her gems, she would wear several bracelets and necklaces plus roughly 14 rings even in the shower. Holy shit. So she was a little bit fucking nuts. I mean, and, and mental illness, I mean, did, you know, run in her family. So it's sad. Uh, she was Terry Hoffman's most devoted follower by a long shot. Uh, those pills she got from Mexico from those cosmic doctors shipped to Sandy via Greyhound bus to avoid possible conflicts with the U.S. Postal Service regulations uh, filled an entire kitchen cabinet. She'd take 20 of them a day, which, you know, began to worry her husband, Chuck. Uh, then she began to talk about, uh, you know, giving some of these pills to their six-year-old daughter, which terrified him. He took the pills to a real medical doctor who tested them, found them to be placebos. Of course, she's just getting grifted. Uh, nothing uh, <laughs> in them would change how Sandy's body functioned at all. Uh, merely a psychological tool to make her feel better through the power of suggestion. Uh, this didn't mean he shouldn't still be worried about his wife, though. It's not what's in the pills that you need to be concerned about, the doctor told him. What you need to be concerned about is a young, impressionable girl and that psychological implication that first, there was something seriously wrong with her, and second, that you should solve it by popping pills, you know, referring to her, their daughter, of course. Chuck is worried. And soon we become more worried, rightfully so. One afternoon, Chuck comes home to find Sandy and Devereaux heading out to the, of the house, suitcases packed, Sandy is holding two plane tickets he didn't know about to San Diego. She wants to take Devereaux to her homeopathic uh, doctor there so he can put her in a special machine that will tune out all of the world's bad juju, all of the world's bad vibrations. Oh, for fuck's sake. Chuck grabs Sandy by her shoulders, forbids her to take the daughter uh, to the doctor. How terrifying for your partner to start doing shit like that with your kid, right? To be obviously losing her fucking mind and becoming dangerous. Later, Chuck found Devereaux's bedsheets damp with her own sweat. Uh, she was hot to the touch. Florid clearly had some kind of illness. Chuck wanted to take her to a, you know, pediatrician, like a good dad. Sandy did not. She wanted to treat her with meditation, incantations, and some incest. Because that works. Sandy should have fucking joined her mom in a mental hospital. Right? She's very, she's clearly mentally ill now to me. Uh, the two parents get into a big blowout fight. Chuck then lays awake until 5 a.m., sneaks out of bed, scoops Devereaux out of the, her bed, quietly bundles her into the backseat of the car. They drive around North Dallas for two hours until he's able to wake up Devereaux's pediatrician. Turns out she had scarlet fever. From that point on, Chuck is staying at home uh, uh, as, as much as he can to uh, try to protect his daughter. He is right to be very worried. During one argument with Sandy, she suddenly waves a butcher knife around the kitchen and says, sometimes I think Devereaux would be better off in heaven. Now, seriously worried about his daughter, Chuck blames his wife's insanity on Terry's influence. 
He forbids their daughter Devereaux from visiting Terry's house. Chuck begs Sandy, please remove yourself from Terry's consciousness developmental or development cult. Sandy, of course, refuses and now sees him as, you know, the enemy. She tells Chuck that Terry is godly. She is St. Teresa reincarnated. She can diagnose illness over great distance. And that with the proper jewelry, of course, she could even cure cancer. <sighs> Sandy says that Terry can uh, put a protective shield around their daughter, Devereaux. Don't even worry about her. A shield Terry had promised will be strong enough to save her from anything except negative vibrations from you, Chuck, which are powerful. Sandy tells Chuck that all their problems stemmed from his negative shit, his negative thoughts. Thoughts that strong, she said, could actually produce bacteria and viruses. <laughs> oh my God, that will infect their daughter. Now Chuck starts to feel that he's trapped in a waiting game, but waiting for what he doesn't know. For Sandy to wake up, stop doing this to him and their daughter, uh, for her to go full-fledged wackadoodle, kill one or both of them. He wants to divorce Sandy. Uh, he thinks he could even get custody, but he also thinks that Sandy would get visitation rights and truly worries that if, uh, you know, uh, the divorce left her with uh, more mentally unhinged, unhinged, she might kill their daughter. He's in a he's in a waking nightmare. So Chuck stays, watches his wife grow more and more insane. He watches her write Terry a check for three thousand dollars one time for guidance. A couple weeks later, Sandy, attending the dinner party, announces that uh, she can turn wine back into grape juice. Chuck at this point doesn't even complain. He's like, whatever, it's just my life now. Uh, you know, doesn't tell her they should leave when she tells other guests. Uh, uh, you know. <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, he holds his tongue when Sandy announced at another get together. There we go. Uh, that she's a former high priestess of Atlantis. Doesn't say anything when she tells a family friend that they were compatible because in a previous life they'd been married. The stranger Sandy got, the closer Chuck stayed at home to keep an eye on their daughter. But then Sandy divorces him. April 22nd, 1971, Sandy tells Chuck that she has filed for divorce using the same rationale that Terry had with John Wilder. She says, you are impeding my spiritual growth. In the ensuing divorce, Devereaux becomes the object of a bitter custody fight. He has to fight now. Sandy is begging neighbors to write letters saying that she is a competent mother, uh, giving them detailed accounts of what she said were flaws in Chuck's character. Chuck, meanwhile, compiling a list of all of uh, Sandy's forays into the metaphysical and insane. It runs from claims of astral projection to actual witchcraft. And uh, he's telling his lawyers about the late evening calls from neighbors, all this stuff. Neighbors who are confused because Sandy will sometimes drop Devereaux off at their house before a conscious development meeting and won't return to pick their kid up. Uh, it's customary for a county juvenile welfare office to investigate the parents in a child custody case and, and make a recommendation to the divorce judge. Parents can't see the report, but lawyers can. Chuck will claim that before the scheduled custody trial, he met with the, his lawyer and with Sandy's lawyer, and both men, he would recall, told him that he stood an excellent chance of winning. But as he had feared earlier, they told him that if he got custody, Sandy might literally kill Devereaux believing she would be better off on some bullshit metaphysical plane than being raised by a man she thought was poisoned with bad karma. Holy fuck. Does it make me a psychopath to be completely okay with uh, Chuck literally killing Sandy, Sandy at this point in the story? Maybe burying her out in the woods, telling their daughter that she just disappeared? Because morally, I would absolutely approve of him doing this at this point. She is dangerously crazy. Uh, the two lawyers advised Chuck to settle for visitation privileges. Chuck agrees goes home to his uh, friend Gene Coker's and drinks himself stupid. Though Terry later will claim that Chuck was after Sandy's money, lawyers for both sides said uh, later that money was the last thing on Chuck's mind and court documents would affirm that under their divorce agreement, all Chuck kept of their marital estate was a 1971 Mercedes and his personal property. The one thing he did insist upon was a provision in the divorce settlement saying that Sandra would have to take Devereaux uh, to only recognized physicians admitted to practice medicine in Texas. 
So it seems like Chuck was a good dad. Also, such a tragic figure in the story. Uh, while the divorce was pending, Sandy paid for Hawaiian honeymoon trip for Terry and Glenn Cooley. Uh, right? Uh, Terry and her, her new husband. She goes with them, taking Devereaux along for the ride despite a court order not to remove her from the state. After the divorce, Sandy and Terry became practically inseparable. Sandy helped Terry and Glenn make the jewelry that supported them. Her kitchen table was covered with jewelry making tools. Uh, Terry would sell some of their wares to consciousness development members, but their work was good enough to sell at craft fairs throughout the state as well, so they did that too. Often Sandy went on these trips, leaving Devereaux in the care of Louise Watson, Sandy's maid, known to friends as Wheezy. While away on these trips, Sandy would meditate for hours with Terry, help her write the lessons Terry was selling under the consciousness development name. She's getting caught up in writing the lore of this stuff now. Uh, she even bought the group of printing press and installed it in her home. She really helps consciousness development grow. Uh, without Sandy's devotion and her trust fund money, there's a good chance none of us would know who the hell Terry Hoffman was. Terry's little cult was attracting serious, good-hearted people now who wanted to become better in some way, wanted to explore metaphysical aspects of their world and themselves in ways science couldn't explain. Some joined purely because of Terry's charisma and knack of knowing was what was important to people. She could read people like a good con artist. Uh, many of them uh, had a crying need for something, you know, that she could uh, said she could deliver, a balm for the pain of losing a loved one, uh, help in dealing with a crippled body, uh, the warmth and loyalty of a, of a tight-knit group. And of course, Terry would exploit all of that big time. Uh, Jane Schneider was attracted by Terry's reputation and obvious, as she saw them, intuitive gifts. She joined Conscious Development in 1974 when Terry was 36, when there were now about 110 local students attending weekly meetings, plus perhaps thousands receiving correspondence courses. Uh, Janine was educated, sensitive, hardworking, quickly rose to become executive director of Conscious Development. Almost as quickly, she became disillusioned with Terry, seeing her as a person with great gifts and talents, but without the psychological roots to use them properly. For one thing, Terry saw no distinction between Conscious Development's funds and her funds. Donations, fees for lessons, uh, later proceeds from estates of some of her followers, all would just go into her personal bank accounts. And that, that is shocking. What? So she's, she's just stealing? Uh, also, Janine had read enough philosophy and New Age teachings to know that uh, a lot of Terry's mystic revelations sounded a lot like the work of various previous writers, like I identical to what they said. Sometimes Terry would tell people that in their past lives, they had seen a great spiritual leader or they had, excuse me, been a great spiritual leader. And then she would quote uh, from a biography of a well-known book. Other times, Terry would give the same illustrious past life to two or more of her followers. <laughs> That's funny to me. Uh, as her cult grew, you know, it got harder to track, you know, all of her mystical woo-woo bullshit. You know, oh, fuck. Uh, sorry, you're not Alexander the Great. You weren't, uh, no, that was that was Tony. I'm sorry. Um, you were Julius Caesar. Uh, by 1977, Janine Schneider saw conscious development assuming some of the most uh, disturbing aspects of Terry's personality. Didn't feel to her like a study group anymore. It felt like a cult. Its members were now sworn to secrecy, a secrecy uh, induced uh, to feel extravagant admiration for Terry, who increasingly played on their feelings of guilt and anxiety. Uh, Joyce Tepley, a Dallas psychotherapist, was uh, in the elite teachers group in conscious development. She had a lot of educated people. And uh, as she would recall of the group at this time, members were handpicked by Terry, told that they were spiritual masters put on earth to help fellow men. Death should not scare them. It would only allow them to move to a higher plane of existence. The earth, Terry said, was the 17th lowest planet in the universe in terms of vibrational energy that determined the peace and happiness available on a planet. Oh, you got so many great planets ahead of you. Uh, Terry said that the 40 men and women now in the teacher's group they were the nucleus of conscious development, the inner circle, the core membership group that drank in Terry's concepts, made sure newer members would learn from them. 
Uh, they all seem to be focused on meditation, self-exploration, feeling at one with the universe. Uh, but then the focus of the group would soon change again and get weirder. In 1977, this is my favorite part of this. Oh, get ready. 1977, Joyce and several other former members are surprised when Terry tells them that she has been meditating a bunch recently and has been informed by the dozen spiritual masters that she and her friends, they had to do more than study. God damn it, they had to fight. Oh, here we go. She said there were two forces in the world, positive and negative, good and evil, and they must actively help the good. The evil forces Terry announced were called black lords. And these black lords traveled in groups and could be fought only in the spiritual realms, not in the physical world. The teacher's group had been selected as worthy of going to battle against them. It would be a dangerous fight, Terry warned, but she would be able to guide them through it. Is it just coincidence that Star Wars, uh, A New Hope, uh, came out just before she announced this shit? Are her, are her group of teachers like Luke Skywalker types and the Black Lords or Darth Vader types? Uh, Terry provided no concrete information, of course, about how to fight, <laughs> about how fighting these Black Lords would be dangerous. She just said that they could be poisoned. Watch out, you guys. You could be poisoned. You could be spiritually infected, etc. There was the implication that if the teachers did not fight, natural catastrophes, terrible accidents would occur around the world. The fate of the planet was in their hands. Innocent people will die. Help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi. You're my only hope. Gradually, conscious development teachers' meetings turned into these frantic fucking New Age LARP-type battles. <laughs> teachers would bring to sessions their magic circles, cloth circles containing a cloth triangle inside. They would then sit inside the magic circle for safety. They would perform protection rituals in preparation for battle. <laughs> Grown-ups were doing this. People with jobs and stuff. Uh, each, according to what uh, Terry uh, told him about her meditations, would bring to the to the meeting a cup, a robe, a fan, a fucking sword, and a rod. Cult, cult, cult. Uh, this is turned into like an SNL parody of a cult now, and I love it. Uh, except for the robe and the magic circle, uh, the other objects didn't have to be actually full size, you know, real objects. Uh, <laughs> some people actually used cocktail swizzle sticks for swords and car at, car antennas for rods. Ah, this just keeps getting better. Ah, how the fuck was anyone able to keep a straight face for all this? Uh, I want this to be a scene from like a Danny McBride movie now. And when they get going into all this and they're doing like karate moves, fighting these invisible black lords, uh, he walks in and just shits all over them. Holy fuck, you dorks are fucking dumb. Oh my God. A cocktail swizzle stick. Are you shitting me? Nobody move. I'm going to call Guinness. You fucking nerds just set the world record for the most pathetic idiots to ever gather inside the same goddamn room. I, I should be arrested for not locking you clowns inside and burning this building down. Uh, most important, or more important, uh, supposedly, than what group members were holding, Terry said, was what the thing symbolized. Right? You're not holding a Dixie cup. You're holding a uh, totem representing the Archangel Gabriel. You're not holding a cheap Chinese fan. You're holding a golden shield representing the Archangel Ariel. The rod and staff they held, or chopsticks or batons or whatever, uh, that represented the archangel Michael. All of their spiritual tools except the rod were essentially defensive. Terry said uh, they helped members attune themselves to protective, arch to protective archangels. To do this, members would make a series of <laughs> gestures with their swords. They would say shit like, north, south, east, west, protect us all around. Uh, they would then touch like the rod to their shoulders. You know, they would. Uh, this was like a power center for their body they were activating. This is so great. Terry instructed them that if you projected your rod outward like you were stabbing someone with a sword and thought really hard along with that, 
that you could eliminate black lords. You would do fucking battle and be like sword fighting in her house or, you know, basement of some fucking shitty strip mall or whatever. Uh, stab those dark wizards, you metaphysical motherfuckers. Uh, battles would be scheduled kind of like football games. They'd go on for hours. <laughs> Every week, Terry would give like a body count. Oh, we, did, we got so many black lords last week, you guys. Uh, regardless of how the battles went, though, their prospects of winning this strange war just continued to get grimmer. Emergency battles had to be called more and more often. Conscious development teachers, according to Terry. Oh, gosh dang, they're up against increasingly evil spirits. A, a growing legion of black lords. You must keep fighting. During their battle, the teaching group's appointed war leader. Sometimes other group members would indicate when a particular spirit was in the room with teachers ready to fight. Oh, there, there it is. Get ready to fight. And these sad, misguided nerds, I mean, important and powerful teachers, uh, they would swing around in unison. Uh, touch rods to their shoulders, aim rods towards the corner with the evil spirit, uh, Electrico. Uh, frequently, the attacker was thought to be someone out of favor with the group. All right. It was, it was the spiritual bodies of former members, uh, often Devereaux Cleaver, Sandy's daughter, attacking them. Uh, disturbing. And yes, the Black Lords could be bodies projected onto another plane by people living in bodies on this plane. And again, these fights would last for hours. Sometimes the teachers would get exhausted. Right, all sweating, dehydrated. It would look like the Black Lords were going to destroy Terry's precious consciousness development cult. Oh my God, the world would be swallowed by natural disasters now. And that was when Terry would have to push a, a, a red button of sorts, right? She would run to the fridge and open a case of fucking Whipple! Dark Lords edition. Tired of fighting a good metaphysical fight, new age nerd? Feeling weak as fuck with nothing but the center of a toilet paper roll for a sword and a baby blanket for a shield? Well, time to kick your excuses out to the astral fucking plane. The only weapons you'll need are an open third eye, two middle fingers pointed straight the fuck up towards the next dimension of kicking ass with Whipple! Dark Lord's Edition. Dark Lord's Edition Whipple is made out of mostly wizard crystals, power vibrations, alpha frequencies, quartz, citrine, tiger's eye, moonstone, obsidian, jasper, more quartz, amethyst, industrial grade ephedrine, colloidal silver, bleach, windex, bit more quartz, some melted-down expensive jewelry. Whipple Dark Lords Edition is made specifically for interdimensional dominance and enlightenment. It is the official drink of the Age of Aquarius. Defeat negative energy bodies trying to destroy your spiritual something. Fuck you, fuck your family, and drink Whipple Dark Lords Edition. That was pretty fun. I felt right for this episode. Uh, okay, despite being able to get her followers to believe in shit this uh, utterly ridiculous, not everything is going well in Terry's life at this time. Her second marriage to Glenn Cooley is in trouble. Glenn Cooley's family had never approved of his marriage to Terry because A, she was 10 years older than him, and B, she was batshit fucking crazy. Uh, friends knew Glenn as a gentle, creative type who never really fit the mold his parents cut out for him. He and his father would argue about practically anything until both of them were blue in the face. He violated curfews, saw friends his parents tried to ban after Glenn's wedding. His mom and father felt that Terry was now keeping him on too tight of a leash. If Glenn was at his mother's house for half an hour, Terry would be on the phone telling him to come home or uh, out in their driveway, honking her horn. Uh, Glenn occasionally complained to Terry that he was having difficulty shedding his religious background. You don't realize how strong these things are ingrained in you when you're young. On November 24th, 1976, Terry files for what she calls a completely amicable, uh, amicable divorce from Glenn. Five days later, he files a waiver allowing for a speedy processing of the divorce, granted on January 27th, 1977. Six days after that, He's dead. Terry tells investigators she found a note in her safe on February 2nd, apparently left there by Glenn the day before. It read, I, Glenn Cooley, give to Terry Cooley all of my property, both personal and real. 
This includes two boats, a 1972 Buick Limited, all jewelry and equipment for its making, all furnishings for the house on Dunhaven Road. Uh, Glenn had given Terry clear title to the house two weeks earlier and all cash. I ask that this last will of mine not be contested by anyone in any way for any reason. Last but not least, I give all my love to all my family and friends. Well, that's nice. He gave other people his love, at least. Uh, as explanation for all this, I can't really say what it is because of, but I can say what it is what it is not because of. It is not because of divorce with Terry, past drug experiences, inability to cope, etc. What it is, I myself know, but don't have the words for. Well, nothing suspicious about any of that. I don't see any reason to investigate. Uh, the investigating judge's report said that Terry had called Alice Hoffman when she found Glenn's note and that they, along with group member Ben Johnson, traveled to a cabin Glenn's parents owned on Lake Grapevine. Uh, Terry will marry Ben, this other follower, five months down the road. Uh, there they find Glenn's body fully clothed and in bed. There's a foamy substance oozing from his mouth, a half-empty can of Coors beer on the dresser next to the bed, two pills discovered under his body, traces of Librium and Valium discovered in Glenn's blood, uh, the cause of death attributed to a drug overdose uh, listed as intentional, you know, a suicide. And so it begins. Alice Hoffman, one of the teachers who was busy waging battle against Dark Lords, uh, made the announcements to the group. Alice and her husband, Richard Donald Hoffman, a.k.a. Don Hoffman, a.k.a. Dick Donnie, come on, uh, had joined the group after their three-year-old son drowned in their backyard swimming pool tragically in 1973. Dick Donnie. Uh, who will become uh, Terry's husband at some point. That's how she ends up with the name of Hoffman in a matter of years. Uh, meanwhile, there is the matter of Glenn's estate. The final account of Glenn's estate filed in Dallas County Probate Court listed uh, only $2,565 $2, in assets, including $1,000 in jewelry. And that figure puzzled Glenn's family. Uh, in the divorce, he had been awarded you know, uh, all proceeds arriving from the jewelry business. And they thought that he had $85,000 worth of gems and medals in his house. After his funeral, Terry invited his parents over to her house, let them select some of his handiwork for themselves. There were three display suitcases, completely full of rings. Glenn's mom, puzzled by Terry's behavior at the funeral, she might have been prejudiced given that uh, she didn't like her. They didn't have a great relationship, but it seemed to her that Terry was crying and talking, and then she would stop and look up at me to see my reaction. I didn't understand it. Didn't seem like she was grieving for Glenn. It seemed like she was put on a show probably was uh later when terry heard that glenn's mom might testify against her in probate court she called glenn's sister uh warned that any inquisition was liable to turn into a mudslinging event and that glenn's history of drug use would come up in court meanwhile she used glenn's death as a rallying cry for conscious development implying that the black lords were to blame for his death terry said <laughs> of course those fucking dark wizards got him uh terry said they needed to fight more than ever against evil energy around them and her members were ready to fight uh, but what came next was too much for a lot of people willing to wage fucking weird, you know, metaphysical LARP battles. Uh, finally, uh, it's too much. Terry told members that their blood was being poisoned now by the Dark Lords. <laughs> Black Lords, fucking whatever. By the fucking Darth Vaders, by the by the um, the Sith, the Sith Lords. And they needed to bleed themselves to get the poison out. She started calling people on the phone to deliver the news that they were poisoned. Uh, Sandy got several syringes, sterilized them, and just started demanding to take blood out of whoever felt they needed to have their blood let. A little vial, as much as you would get, you know, uh, uh, out of your body if you went to the doctor, your blood test is what they would take. By mid-1978, Joyce Tapley and several of her friends are now leaving conscious development. She could handle the woo-woo stuff. She could handle the fucking weird sword fights with, you know, I don't know, any kind of sticks they could find, but not the bloodletting. That was too much. Uh, as other members of the group defected, Sandy Cleaver grew more loyal to Terry. And Terry became more poisonous for Sandy. 
She's telling Sandy that her daughter, Devereaux, has been taken over by Dark Lords. <laughs> She's a great, uh, powerful negative being who is attacking her. That's ah, so fucked up. Sandy then tells other conscious development members that Devereaux is trying to get her, trying to do nasty things to her, deviate her energy. This is her young teenage daughter. Uh, to help fight this, Sandy puts two Egyptian totems under her daughter Devereaux's bed, a crook and a flail, symbols of protection. So, okay, that's good. So sad that her daughter was not taken away from this fucking insane mom. Sandy also gets grifted harder than ever uh, from Terry, thinking that Terry will uh, be helped by powerful jewelry in her fight against the Dark Lords. Uh, listening to Terry tell her that a gem's power is proportionate to its value, she gives Terry uh, the most expensive pieces from her fine jewelry collection. Some of these are like heirloom pieces. Uh, one exotic piece Chuck Cleaver would remember includes several large diamonds. Terry kept it for some time, then returned it, telling Sandy that the stones in it were worthless. Sandy sued the jeweler, jeweler who had set the diamonds, charging him without making a substitution, or charging him, excuse me, with making a substitution. Uh, never even thought that Terry had made the switch. Others would definitely think that. Uh, Susan even asked a neighbor if she could rent a dazzling ruby bracelet for Terry, saying that Terry needed the power of stones for psychosurgery that she needed coming up. Uh, the neighbor declined to help with the operation. Yeah, I bet they probably also declined to talk to Sandy as much going forward. Uh, in August of 1978, Sandy wrote a will leaving everything to Terry, her house, antiques, valuable Audubon prints, her inheritance, uh, which was still providing her with a steady income of about $20,000 a year, which might not sound like that much, but about $90,000 today. Plus she had, you know, lump sum payments from earlier. Uh, her 13-year-old daughter, Devereaux, uh, not even mentioned in her will, uh, though very much alive and living with mom. Uh, Devereaux also had a trust fund uh, amounting to about $125,000. Uh, weirdly enough, four days after Sandy wrote her new will, Devereaux did likewise. Her money also was to go to Conscious Development, the group that thought she was sending fucking Dark Lords to attack them all the time. Seems a little suspicious. Uh, Devereaux actually prepared two wills, dated August 18th, 1978. Uh, the first was addressed to Terry and Ben Johnson, the man that Terry had married uh, five months after Glenn Cooley's death. It was a rather schoolgirlish document, like she was signing the yearbook instead of making plans for, uh, you know, uh, her, her own death. Uh, Devereaux left her rock collection to the Green Hill School Science Department, her paperback books to the school library. <laughs> this is so like sad. The National Geographics to consciousness development and her money to go to build a school for conscious development of body, mind, and soul incorporated. To her mom, Devereaux left her art portfolio and a message. Mom, friends forever. I love you a very great deal. To her father, she left her basketball, her reading award, her antique whistles. Uh, that's a random thing to have a collection of, uh, with the postscript, you're the best dad in the world. I love you a ton to Terry. She left all my jewelry. Of course, the second will, uh, read like it was copied from a legal form book. I give devise and bequeath all of my property. That sounds like something a 14 year old's gonna write, including all rights, titles, and interests of whatever character I may own in and to any property, real, personal, or mixed wherever situated to Terry Johnson, uh, who has been to me like a second mother. Under the second will, in other words, Terry could use the money for a school or for a cruise. Didn't have to be spent on conscious development. It was up to her. And like Glenn Cooley and Sandy Devereaux wrote that the will not to be contested under any conditions. What a weird coincidence. Uh, Devereaux's will was witnessed by Thomas Welch, Virginia Rawlings, two conscious development teachers slash fucking Jedis, uh, notarized by Jedi Alice Hoffman. But minors can't write wills in Texas. And did she even write it or did they all lie and say that they saw her do that? Uh, to most of her friends and family, Devereaux uh, Cleaver seemed, uh, uh, did not seem like someone who would leave her trust fund to a cult that she didn't care for. 
Uh, she did not participate in conscious development activities. She seemed embarrassed by them. Before inviting one girl uh, over to spend the night, she said, don't be too weirded out. When she had friends over, she was clearly embarrassed by Sandy. One evening, Devereaux had a severe headache uh, when her mom offered to, uh, which her mom offered to treat. Devereaux asked a visiting girlfriend to stay in the bedroom. She and her mom went to the living room, which Devereaux uh, or- ordinarily wasn't allowed in. Weird. After half an hour, Devereaux's friend got bored, walked uh, back to see what was going on in the living room. By the light of a single candle... Through a uh, a bunch of incest or incest, Jesus Christ, incense, very different picture. Through a bunch of incense smoke, uh, she could see Sandy massaging Devereaux's head, murmuring incantations. Then Devereaux jumped up, flustered, and led her friend away. I only do this to make my mom happy, she said. Uh, Devereaux, despite uh, all this shit with her mom, seemed most like a normal kid, crazy about the band Aerosmith. Good, good, uh, good choice. She wanted to date the cutest boy in their class. Uh, she would go to Valley View Mall, flirt with boys. Because of her slender five foot, 10 inch frame and her sunny blonde hair, they often mistook the middle schooler for a 19 year old. Uh, messing around, she'd introduce her eighth grade classmates as her little sisters. She wrote poetry, sometimes dealing with her own isolation. One example was uh, I soar amongst waves of blue and white. The feathers on my back ripple softly as the wind rushes. I dip and turn. I am light and free. I'm a bird on the wings of time. And as the sun climbs higher, it flashes beams of gold everywhere. I'm alone, a single shadow in a world of life. I don't know a lot about poetry. That seems like a pretty good poem. Uh, Devereaux seemed to fight with her mother constantly. She sent a letter to one of her friends on November 28th or November 22nd, 1978. that said, sorry, I couldn't talk to you last night, but my mom had a fit with me. She was bitching me out when you called the first time. And I yelled, my mom is sick. And that did it. Uh, she got up and tried to slap me, but it was hilarious because I'm bigger than she is. And I wouldn't let her. Uh, according to friends, Devereaux wanted nothing more than to live with her father full time. But then a few weeks later, suddenly seemed like her relationship with her mom was uh, on better footing. Uh, coincidentally, after she turned 14, now had the ability to choose which parent she wanted to live with. So she wrote those wills earlier uh, when she's about to turn 14, not at 14. Uh, mom and I are on really good terms, Devereaux wrote a friend on December 21st, 1978. Devereaux was excited that her mom was finally letting her uh, you know, into her life more. Sandy now had a fiance, Lynn Fairchild. Uh, Sandy invited Devereaux to join them on a pre-wedding Hawaiian vacation, and she accepted. On February 25th, 1979, 14-year-old Devereaux and Sandy take a blue inflatable raft, wade into the waters of a mudflat lagoon near the Wailupe Peninsula. The lagoon, which Terry had visited on a previous trip to Hawaii, was uh, 20 miles from the Honolulu Hotel, and it was uh, not a great choice to go swimming. Better place for catching crabs. Uh, there was essentially no beach. Water was shallow and calm for about 400 yards, and then the waves uh, would break over viciously, uh, a viciously razor-sharp coral reef. While Lynn Fairchild slept off some lunchtime champagne, Sandy and Devereaux waded towards the reef, and then they were floating over that reef when a wave knocked them off the raft. Sandy later told Chuck that Devereaux, a strong swimmer, said, I'm scared, mommy. Another wave uh, knocked them apart from one another. Sandy later said she remembered diving underwater, looking for her daughter, uh, and then she just remembered, you know, wakening atop a reef. Didn't know what happened in the little interim there, calling for help, unable to see her daughter. Uh, Lynn Fairchild heard her calls, alerted the fire department. Sandy was rescued, cut, bruised, and shocked. Devereaux, nowhere to be found. Chuck Cleaver got a call from Terry at 1 a.m. Dallas time saying that Sandy was in the hospital and Devereaux was missing. Holy shit, he and a friend, Gene Coker, take a plane to Honolulu that uh, same afternoon. A lot of tears are shed on that plane. While waiting to board it at DFW Airport, Chuck learns that his daughter has died. Then while they were airborne, a follower of Terry's calls Chuck's house saying that they had a document she was supposed to let Chuck's family see. It was Devereaux's will. Moving fast. Uh, when Chuck visited Sandy in the hospital, she was crying at first. But when Terry walked in, Sandy stopped crying, began saying weird shit like Devereaux will be happier in heaven. 
Oof. Autopsy showed no signs of foul play, no trace of drugs uh, or alcohol in Devereaux's body. But Chuck's friend, Gene Coker, just thought the whole affair was very strange. Why'd you take her out there on that reef? He had more doubts uh, during the plane trip home uh, with Devereaux's body in the cargo hold. Coker was telling Sandy to exercise her legs so she'd uh, you know, be able to walk when she got off the plane. And then Ben Johnson, Terry's new husband, uh, listening to this uh, conversation, he leans over the seat and says, Gene, you can really help Sandy. Take all the hurt and pain, receive it through, through your right hand. Take it through your body. Fling it out into the universe through your left hand. You can do that. Gene was like, who the fuck are these maniacs? He, uh, he thinks uh, something's going on with Terry and her band of weirdos. When Sandy gets home, she seems to fall apart. She calls off her wedding plans. Her uh, checkbook records, formerly so precise, become jumbled, sometimes illegible. She rejects her brother's advice to back away from Terry. She becomes obsessed with the idea that he is going to fight her efforts to leave Terry her estate, which she wants to do now. Meanwhile, Terry tells Sandy that she will, uh, that she can, excuse me, communicate with the dead, including Devereaux. And that belief seems to, uh, you know, sustain Sandy. One of Devereaux's closest friends dropped by Sandy's house months after the drowning ends up getting really creeped out. Sandy tells her that if I ever wanted to come see Devereaux, I should just come over to the house for a sort of meditation with her. And she'll talk to Jesus and ask if we can see Devereaux and she'll come. And if she's all messed up with blood and stuff, that's just because she was in a hurry to see you. And Jesus didn't have time to clean her up and fix her up and put a dress on her. Fuck. God. Damn, man. Uh, within two months after Devereaux's death, Sandy takes out a $300,000 life insurance policy, double the amount recommended by her insurance agent. She makes it payable to Terry. Uh-oh. By the December after Devereaux's death, December 1979, Sandy has given Terry a gift uh, of all her worldly goods, including her house and all her valuable artwork and silver. In February of 1980, Sandy writes Terry that after death, she wants all of her goods to be used either directly or indirectly for the benefit of conscious development. Then Sandy helps incorporate conscious development with Terry as the sole member of its board of directors. Uh, in April of 1980, Don and Alice Hoffman divorce after 22 years of marriage. Uh, Alice then signs a waiver to allow Don to marry Terry without the usual day waiting period. Cult, cult, cult. This female leader is fucking her third follower now, at least. Uh, Derry had uh, Terry had just divorced her third husband, Ben Johnson, one month earlier. Afterwards, Alice, Alice Hoffman quietly drops out of conscious development. Jumping ahead a year to June 12th, 1981, Sandy writes a new will, again, leaving everything to Terry. Wheezy Watson, then 78, also writes a will of her own that same day, naming Sandy as the executrix of her meager estate with Terry as the alternate executrix. So that's uh, interesting. Wheezy's friends later will question, according to court filings, why Wheezy would feel it necessary to write a will, why she would name as her alternate executrix a woman who she did not like, who she complained about dominating Sandy. On August 24th, Sandy writes her brother Croom an odd letter. It's 13 pages long, typed and single-spaced. Reads like an autobiography, with heavy emphasis on Terry. Saying stuff like, She has not only been a close friend, she has been the closest of sisters to me. She is one of the few true, humble, egoless people I've ever met. Crom uh, does not realize until he gets the letter that his sister, with whom he had been uh, had long-standing financial disagreements, had been keeping meticulous notes on her phone conversations with him. Notes that Terry later would use to keep him from wresting Sandy's estate away from her. He couldn't, excuse me, he couldn't help noticing that the letter his sister had just sent him seemed to be written for an audience. Why did Sandy feel it necessary to remind him that Nanny and Brick Daddy, for example, were his maternal grandparents and were in their 80s? Because she is mentally ill. Why did she feel it necessary to justify Devereaux's writing a will? Sandy ended her letter by saying she planned a trip to the Colorado Springs area in Colorado to see some land Terry and Don just bought in the mountains. We may eventually build a retreat there. 
Since Wheezy enjoyed going along on my last vacation uh, to the Human Unity Conference, I may ask her if she wants to go along on this trip. Crumb had a bad feeling about all this, but didn't know what to do about it. Two weeks later, on September 8th, uh, Sandy leaves for Colorado. She has, to, uh, she has the locks to her house changed. Sandy would go out of town frequently, normally left a key to her house with her neighbors, uh, the Hannes. Hannes boys would feed her cat, mow her lawn, but this time does not ask them for help. Uh, she takes Wheezy, uh, though documents from court later claim that Wheezy did not want to go on the trip with Sandra. She had not been well. Sandra forced her to go. Sandy and Wheezy spent their first night in Colorado at the home of Terry's sister in Colorado Springs. The next day, September 9th, they leave to make the inspection trip to the conscious development land near Cripple Creek. Not the one of the song, unfortunately. That's a great, the band song. Uh, the next day, an Air Force Academy paramedic happened to spot their mercury links at the base of a 450-foot cliff below torturous Gold Camp Road. Both Sandy and Wheezy had been thrown from the car and killed. The local medical examiner uh, fixed their time of death at around noon. There were no skid marks, no tire tracks at all. They didn't try and slow down. On the red clay and granite road, the conditions were not bad. wasn't slick. No clues as to what it might have caused them to drive over the cliff. It's almost like Sandy fucking wanted to drive off the road and kill herself and take Wheezy with her so that Terry could get both of their uh, inheritances. You know, uh, both their, yeah, the recipients of their will. Uh, strangely, it didn't seem like Terry uh, Hoffman wanted answers about the death of her most ardent follower. Sandy's brother, Kroom Beatty, or Betty, wanted some answers. Though uh, on November 10th, at his request, Dallas attorney, Jim Barklow, filed papers contesting Sandra's will. Barclow charged in the suit that Sandy's will was invalid because she lacked the ability to exercise freely independent thoughts. The will he submitted was executed as a result of undue influences uh, exerted over the deceased by Terry. Sandy was controlled by Terry's use of hypnosis, Pavlovian conditioning, and psychotherapy. Furthermore, Kroom Betty's uh, position charged Sandra Betty Cleaver was but one of several persons whose wills were written or changed pursuant to the direct influence, suggestion, and psychological control of Terry. Terry's attorney, D. Ronald Renneker, wanted to stop uh, short any attempt to tie Terry even indirectly to the deaths of Glenn Cooley, Devereaux Cleaver, Sandra Cleaver, and Louise Wheezy Watson. He won trial judge Robert C. Topper's approval of a motion to prevent any discussion beyond the dates of death for all the cases except for Sandra's. But Terry would still be in hot water. Evidence of other crimes were mounting against her. During her pre-trial deposition, she admitted that she used tranquilizers and that the money from Chandra's insurance policy was in her personal bank account, not in the conscious development account. She also said there were not yet any drawings for the school or the retreat center that Sandy and Devereaux had wished to support her to make. Uh, she admitted try, uh, trying to influence several witnesses. Uh, she couldn't even remember also key points in conscious development's convoluted dogma when asked about it. Dogma she fucking made up. Uh, what were the four liberations of conscious development, they asked? Uh, she didn't know. What were the five modes of destructive mental activity? Can't remember. Sometimes she remembered things wrong. Uh, one conscious development lesson titled Morality says that wives, children, and other responsibilities, attachments, are the most insidious and deceitful of the destructive passions. Those attachments are necessary and proper, but dangerous when one becomes so absorbed in these that there is no time for self-improvement, no time for spiritual devotions. Remember that the liberation of your own soul is the one thing for which you are in this world. Nothing else counts. That is a super fucked up message. Uh, Barclow read the final two sentences to Terry, asked if they were part of conscious development's teachings. And that weasel, knowing how this looked, lied her ass off and just said, no, that is not. Has it ever been? He asked. Nope. Finally, Barclow was able to introduce expert testimony on hypnosis from a local psychotherapist, hyp hypnotherapist named Mary Ellen Grundman. She told the jury that hypnosis could be performed on someone with or without their consent or knowledge. 
that it would be very easy to hypnotize someone who trusted you completely and that it would be simple to trick them into committing self-destructive acts at a future time in another location without the presence of the person who planted the suggestion. That's fucking terrifying. She said a third grader could do it if he wanted to badly enough. Terry was far more convincing than a third grader, she said. In her defense, several of Terry's followers testified that Sandy was independent, strong-willed, and under her own control. Bullshit. Uh, Terry apparently worried that the jury would not reach the same conclusion, though. On the morning of the sixth day of the trial, both sides announced a settlement. Terry and Dick Donnie uh, would make an immediate $50,000 payment to Croom Betty. Uh, They would pay another $62,500 on Halloween. Sandy's house would be sold, with Croom getting 40% of the proceeds and the rest going to Terry and Dick Donnie. (laughs) I do, I do love saying dick time. Uh, the rest of Sandy's estate would be divided equally. No one knew at the time that three of the four followers who testified on Hoffman's behalf would later commit suicide. The first of those suicides would occur over five years later, April of 1987. Let's meet Robin Ostot now, uh, who has been referenced previously. Robin had been a loyal follower of conscious development for over a decade. She had stepped in to fill the shoes that Sandy vacated as Terry's most loyal follower. Robin had met Terry in 1974, two years after her divorce a counselor for troubled children in the Dallas public school system. She had written the school system's citizenship curriculum designed to teach responsibility and decision-making. Her own life, however, dominated by Tara's teachings. How ironic. Terrified of the Darth Vader's, I mean, Dark Lords, I mean, Black Lords. Robin filled her uh, Lake Highlands home with protective crystals and friendly gnomes. (laughs) Ah, she's gonna have some magic gnomes. Uh, As a member of the White Brotherhood, she participated in, you know, the weird ritual battles against forces of evil, sword fighting invisible demons with broom handles and shit, making great decisions as she taught Dallas public school students, uh, you know, how to handle their problems. What the fuck is happening in this story? Beneath her bed, Robin had placed special protective shields, uh, lengths of copper tubing twisted into strange serpentine shapes. <laughs> and just when he thought this story, ah, oh, couldn't get crazier. Uh, Terry even was able to convince her to start dating an imaginary partner. Again, this lady was a counselor for troubled children in the Dallas public school system. And <laughs> she is dating an invisible CIA agent named George. Mm-hmm. And also she's uh, fighting off a bunch of non-physical bodies that have been uh, attacking her. In her notebooks, Robin described dates and romantic dinners with George, heart-to-heart talks, poignant love letters, uh, even a camping trip that she and invisible George took to Colorado. But the couple could not marry. <laughs> It was forbidden by Terry for reasons of national security. Holy shit. This fucking lady went on a camping trip with an imaginary boyfriend while working as a counselor. Careful by the fire, George. Don't burn yourself. Did you burn yourself? It's hard to tell since you're invisible. Let me know if you need first aid, George. Hey, George, you you brought bear spray, right? Yes. I do want to make love to you, George. Wait, let me take off my underwear. There. uh, Oh, stop, stop, stop. You're wearing a condom, right, George? I'm trusting you. I can't get pregnant. I am not ready ready to raise an invisible baby. How is this real people's lives? Terry also told Robin that her best friend, Tamara Taylor's invisible CIA lover, Martin, was threatening her life. Yes, there's two invisible CIA lovers. What are the odds that both you and your best friend would both date invisible CIA lovers? Not even the same one. Fear of this other invisible CIA agent made Robin uh, oblivious to her real-life commitments. She is neglecting her high school-aged son because she's worried about this other invisible CIA agent trying to get her. She's becoming more and more distant from him. Terry is a fucking evil wizard. Terry also convinced Robin she had a disease, a bad one. On April 19th, 1987, she told her former husband that she had terminal viral hepatitis. 
Then two days later, right after visiting Terry, Ostant killed herself with a 38 caliber revolver. The only note she left behind read, I'm apologizing to Terry 3,000 times a week. Fucking what? On all levels of my being for the highly offensive, rude, and vulgar comments made to her last week, I love her dearly and beg her forgiveness one day. Her blood test showed, of course, zero signs of disease. She didn't have hepatitis. The only thing she had was a fucking Terry Hoffman infection. Evil wizard infection. Uh, Just six months later, November 30th, follower Mary Levinson overdoses in a hotel room in Chicago. She's 33, young woman who'd had a mixed life. She had a good childhood. She was the granddaughter of a man who had founded a chain of men's clothing stores in Indiana. Money was uh, not really a problem for the family. She had three siblings. Uh, She was a talented artist, an animal lover. But sometimes she felt deprived of the attention that her brothers got. By the time she was an adult, she struggled with depression and anxiety. Uh, She would make six suicide attempts over the course of her life. At a divorce proceedings at a divorce proceeding months before her death in October of 1986, a Chicago psychiatrist who had treated her for more than a year testified that Mary was in therapy two to three times a week, and that she was virtually immobilized by anxiety and tension, also because of some knee problems and stress. Most of the sessions were conducted by phone. Uh, the psychiatrist testified. Previously, when she had made suicide attempts, she had reached out to her family before they were able to put a plan into action to save her. This time, there was no such call. Police found Mary curled up in a first floor room at the Hillside Holiday Inn in suburban Chicago, wearing a pink sweatshirt, green sweatpants, pink shoes, blue and pink socks. On the nearby night table was a partially smoked pack of cigarettes, motel room key, pen, blank notepad, glass of Sprite, and almost 100 pills. An autopsy uh, noted a small needle puncture mark in her left wrist, determined that she overdosed on two types of prescription medicine, prescription sleeping pills. Uh, briefcase on one of the beds held her driver's license, cut-up Visa card, and $119. Inside an unsealed manila envelope, police found a tape she had left uh, for her parents. Police also discovered that she had uh, new tattoos, two crosses emblazoned on her left arm. As her family fielded calls of people offering condolences, one name stuck out, Terry Hoffman. Name sounded familiar. Mrs. Levinson had uh, seen a photograph of her daughter with Terry at a retreat where they'd met. In time, their weekly Chicago to Dallas phone consultations grew so important to Mary that Mary once asked her mom to wait in the lobby of her apartment building for over an hour while she was talking to Terry Bear. Uh, Mary's parents wondered if Terry Hoffman had anything to do with the fact that Mary's estate had disappeared, uh, that she had changed her life insurance policy. Then they found some clues in a taped message from Mary. In the tape made just before her death, Mary claimed to have used a divorce settlement she received 10 days before her death to pay off minor debts and make contributions to animal welfare societies. She said, I also donated money to institutions, charitable institutions, which I will not name. I don't want any hassle, any trace, any way for you to try and retrieve that money that has been given out of love to them to people that really need it. That was my money to do with as I pleased, and that was what I chose to do. All in all, it was upwards uh, of $125,000 from her recent divorce settlement. Furthermore, in the weeks before her death, Mary Levinson sold most of her antique furniture, family heirlooms, including jewelry and artwork. At that time, her mom sent Mary a check for 1000 bucks, assuming her daughter needed money for expenses while awaiting a divorce settlement. After her death, family members discovered that while Mary Levinson was selling off her belongings, she was also using her mother's charge card to buy more than $3,200 worth of fine jewelry, none of which could be found after her death. So many troubling questions. Why did Mary remove her youngest brother, Paul, as the beneficiary of her life insurance policy less than two weeks before she died? Although she spoke warmly and fondly of her brother in the taped message to her parents, the family uh, said she named a new beneficiary, Dr. Larry Keyes a former boyfriend whom she met at a retreat with uh, Ms. Hoffman and follower of Terry Hoffman's. What became of that uh, $125,000? And I I said Ms. should be Mrs. Hoffman. What became of that $125,000 divorce settlement she received 10 days before she was found dead? According to her attorney, she withdrew the entire sum in cash. But where was it now? 
Terry Hoffman would, of course, claim that conscious development didn't have it. Then another strange thing would happen in Chicago. Just weeks later, mid-December of 1987, Charles Southern, the assistant chairman of the English department at a Chicago junior college, abruptly vanishes. He was a high-ranking member of the Chicago chapter of conscious development. He taught classes, you know, uh, fucking led uh, Jedi sword fights, uh, led meditation sessions. He'd invited, uh, he, was, he had been invited previously to Terry's home in Dallas. Within her cult, he was doing great outside of it, not so much. Uh, one day, not long before his disappearance, Charles was found wandering the streets, holding a newspaper and saying, I lived for art. These people are not doing well. She is fucking breaking down their minds. His sister took him to the hospital, fearing he was suicidal. During his recovery, his mom visited every day. Uh, two of the group's members also did. Surprised that they would ask his mom to leave them so they could talk to him alone. After he was released, he seemed to return to his normal activities. He was still involved with the group, but then did have some sort of falling out with Terry. By December of 1987, Charles had planned a trip to India that would occur during his Christmas break. Talked to his family several times prior to his scheduled departure date. During the last conversation, he said he was fine. He'd be leaving in three days. And then two weeks passed with no word. Uh, his family was concerned because they assumed he was, uh, or sorry, his family initially was not concerned because they just assumed he was on the trip. But then when Charles' parents entered his home, they found that his passport had no entry stamps for India. Moreover, uh, he couldn't be in India because he didn't have his passport. Then in a drawer, they found a powerful medication similar to the lethal South American poison. Uh, it's curare. Curare is normally used as an anesthetic to paralyze and it can only be injected. Also discovered that his coat had been folded inside out on a ceremonial stool with his hat on top. Uh, they later learned this display was, uh, I guess, some kind of Nigerian tribal symbol of death. Finally, they find two barely legible notes one stated in part, I came under a bad influence and I was trying to fight it myself. Just fucking dark lords. Uh, the other was apparently his last will and testament. Naming, wouldn't you know it, Terry as the executor of his uh, estate. Hoffman sold or told Southern's family she was not involved in his disappearance. Uh, formally, she was never charged in connection with Southern's case. Authorities still don't know if Southern chose to leave on his own accord or if other forces were at work. If he's alive today, he would be 68 years old. Let's move on to another person close to Terry whose life ended tragically, her fourth husband. While the fall of 1998, Dick Donnie, he's not feeling so well. He'd been having health problems, marital difficulties. Uh, one concerning diary passage written by another follower about Dick Donnie and Terry read, Sunday, June 19th, day of justice for all. Terry comes over and takes a new pill with us. Dawn has lowered her consciousness. God infuriates David, another follower over Dawn's poor treatment of Terry. David asked God to bring justice to Dawn, not to send bad karma, just to send karma that he deserves. Oh boy. September 16th, 1988, Dick Donnie checks into the room of the uh, Marriott Hotel in Las Colinas, Texas. Later that night, he takes his own life. Like with Mary Levinson, investigators will discover a video of Dick Donnie taken just prior to his death. In the video, he says goodbye to his family, reveals he has terminal cancer, which has been proven by three different doctors who are not named. However, Dick Donnie's autopsy shows he has not a trace of cancer in his body. His family never able to learn the names of the doctors because they probably didn't fucking exist. Then in a phone call with Dick Donnie's son, Rick, uh, Rick, or sorry, Terry Hoffman was recorded explaining that a spiritual master in the ephemeral realm told her that what Don definitely had was cancer. He said the Black Lords were trying to create an illusion so the medical examiner wouldn't find cancer so they would hurt us all more. So that, for me, does explain everything. So that one was on the up and up. Uh, the next cult death attributed by many to Terry is even more suspicious than that one. Uh, a few minutes before noon, September 20th, 1988, four days after Dick Donnie Hoffman's death, Madeline Moore parks her car in front of a house on Lakeshore Drive. 
This one is fucking creepy. Uh, She was there to see her therapist, a woman named Jill Bounds. She assumed that, as usual, Jill would read the tarot for her, scanning the esoteric cards with her medieval pictures, depicting lovers and the devil, uh, you know, it was always fun for her. Uh, You know, interesting therapist, by the way. Uh, Madeline didn't take tarot cards seriously, but Jill did. Jill would consult the cards about everything, then write what they uh, said to her in her meticulously kept journals. Jill always had some exciting metaphysical theory to talk about. Auras, astrology, rune stones, channeling, astral projection, reincarnation, psychic surgery. Right, all this new age shit. Uh, she studied Buddhism and American Indian religions. In fact, she seemed to have two different personalities. One was a confident, career-oriented woman. Another, a scared girl desperately searching for life's meaning. After attending East Texas State University, Jill worked a variety of secretarial jobs, uh, working for an investment firm, a lawyer, a bank executive. She'd marry a man, but they divorced after a year in 1970. That's when her search for meaning seemed to pick up speed. Quickly, she burned through a series of relationships with men, passionate liaisons with professionals who seemed to fall instantly in love with her, but she would seem like she couldn't care less about them. Meanwhile, she's getting uh, interested in metaphysical ideas. In late 1974, she begins teaching yoga. Many of her friends attend her classes. Also starts reading any esoterica she can get her hands on, stuff about divination, fortune-telling, spirit realms. 1977, she'd leave the business world to get a degree in psychology, later set up her own practice. Word of mouth, YMCA classes and stress management, bring in patients who are uh, mostly uh, interested in spiritual growth, not uh, those struggling with severe mental illness. They looked up to her, a competent professional woman who was serving the community. But Jill was struggling to find her own meaning. In 1979, she claimed to have had a past life regression that traumatized her, recalling that in a previous life, she had been beaten to death. Ah, gosh, dang. And uh, she would tell many clients and friends that she was an old soul who had lived numerous times before and was almost done with her work now on earth. After her next death, she said, though, oh, she would finally escape the karmic circle of reincarnation because of her high level of spiritual development. Uh Uh-oh. She began to believe shortly before her death that she was one of the few people on earth who were highly evolved enough to grasp many of the answers to her, uh, uh, you know, mankind's problems and her own. She was also turning more and more to supplements, vitamins, anything outside the realm of traditional medicine for any of her ills. Every morning after her ritual of meditation and yoga, she would down a handful of vitamins and herbs. She would uh, take uh, frequent colonics to cleanse her intestinal tract. I I should have said herbs, uh, not herbs. (laughs) She began visiting to pray to massage therapists, acupuncturists, homeopaths, some of whom prescribe things like dog's milk and snake venom for her to ingest to make her feel better. Mm -mm, Dog's milk and snake venom. The true breakfast of champions. Uh, What are you eating? Wheaties? Of course you are, you fucking loser. Have you even teleported across the astral plane today, shithead? You'd be there right now if you had a big enough chicken skin duffel bag to wake up with some fucking dog's milk and snake venom, you, you fucking big pile of pussy. The hell's going on with these people? Jill's obsession in her uh, health multiplied in the, about her health multiplied in the early 80s after a doctor diagnosed abdominal growths as uterine fibroid tumors and recommended surgery. Determined to stay away from Western medicine to avoid an operation, she began following some fad mac- macrobiotic diets. Uh, one of her favorite restaurants became a place uh, called Francis uh, Simon's uh, or sorry, just one of her favorite restaurants was a place called Francis Simons. Uh, and, and Simon claimed that a macrobiotic diet could cure cancer, diabetes, AIDS, anything. So she's surrounding herself with a, with a lot of great, really smart people right now. When it became obvious that her new diet was not getting rid of the tumors, uh, she began uh, heading down to Mazatlan, Mexico. There she attended new age seminars set about to bring Americans uh, to see so-called psychic surgeons uh, in the Philippines. So that's perfect. Don't see an actual doctor. No, no, you're way better off seeing a psychic surgeon. Jill seemed convinced that the tumors were being pulled from her body as this psychic surgeon magically produced bits of bloody tissue. 
miraculously from her abdomen uh, without an incision, uh, cleaned out her third eye, which showed tiny pieces of gristle, supposedly taken from her forehead. This is like fucking chicken guts and shit. After one such experience, she claimed things were blindingly clear for three days. But of course, this is a sham. Poor Andy Kaufman ended up uh, seeing one of these fucking idiots towards the end of uh, his life. All a con, just some shady motherfuckers helping to kill people for a quick buck. Meanwhile, Jill continues to keep counting throughout all of this. Her counting starts to become not good. Uh, instead of doing actual counting, she's uh, mostly doing stuff like, you know, reading tarot cards or drawing up astrological charts. She's leading clients in light work. She's a light worker. So that's good. Uh, around the time of Madeline's appointment with her, uh, Jill is really becoming unhinged. Four days before Madeline showed up for her appointment, Jill announced that she had discovered after hypnosis had regressed her to four years of age that she had been sexually molested by her father. Oh, that poor bastard. Good old fa- false memory syndrome. Jill was considering changing her profession now. She wanted to do uh, more business consulting for new agey people, uh, thinking about buying some land in Santa Fe, one of her favorite places, open up a new age bed and breakfast. Terry Hoffman's student wanted to become a teacher but that would never happen. As Madeline walked to Jill's front door that September day, 1988, Madeline noticed something odd. The paper was still on the front lawn. Unusual because Jill followed a strict schedule up at 6 a.m., 30 minutes of meditation, 30 minutes of yoga, 30 minutes to dress her petite frame, another 30 minutes to eat breakfast and read the paper. Then appointments with clients in the small office, you know, trickled in for the, uh, at her house, at her office in her house for the rest of the day. Uh, but that day, Jill doesn't come to the door. She doesn't answer the phone when Madeline called from a payphone down the street either. Next morning, Madeline returned to the house with the police. At the house, Madeline found another of Jill's friends whose husband had come by the house earlier that morning for his appointment. The two women walked around the house, noticed the blinds are half shut, lights inside are on, uh, papers are scattered around the floors. Officers come, break in, report the grim news. Jill Bounds is dead. The death, not a suicide. In her bedroom, Jill lay in a bloody bed, her skull literally crushed. Scattered across the floor in bed, uh, one of her many decks of tarot cards. Suspiciously, police found two Winston cigarette butts on the ground by the open window, one of three in the house that was not on the security system, a fact impossible to tell from the outside. When Jill bought the system for $1,685.1985, she cut costs by leaving three windows unmonitored, which only saved her $120, sadly. The window had not been opened, uh, or excuse me, had not only been opened, the lower half had been taken out of its frame and placed against a wall in the living room. One of her sheets had been pulled up to her, uh, like over her head uh, before she'd been hit as if the killer couldn't bear to look at her features. And then she was struck seven times uh, across the skull. Though blood spatters were found on the window blinds near her bed, none were found on the headboard or wall behind the bed. The lights were on. Uh, there was blood in the bathroom. The murderer had probably washed up there, police thought. Uh, the crime scene was confusing. Most of Jill's jewelry was missing, right? Terry Hoffman. Other valuable items still present, like a Cartier watch, sterling silver play settings, uh, a new computer and television. Ah, hmm, who really liked jewelry? Yeah, I think it was. Uh, police also found a journal from 1979 with several pages ripped out, bloody smudges. Uh, what were they supposed to make of that? Why were only certain pages torn out? Investigators also discovered that Jill had a connection to Terry Hoffman. Apparently, Jill had been having relationship troubles with a man named Adam Schubert recently. She had been telling him frequently that he could improve his personality, handing him a list of traits that she wanted him to work on, be on time, be more friendly, etc., she wanted him to move from his North Dallas apartment to a more geographically desirable location as well. Uh, once, Jill demanded that he meditate more to improve his aura or she wouldn't continue to make love to him. Just gotta get your fucking aura right, bro, or no puss. Uh, she was also incredibly jealous, constantly accused him of cheating on her. She, and she would literally attack him uh, if he would show up late, like rip some of his shirts. <laughs> 
May 5th, after she was diagnosed with a vaginal infection, she'll, Jill dragged Schubert to a doctor's office, convinced he'd given her an STD. Uh, they got into a fight. Jill told friends the doctor recommended that she break off their four-month relationship. Probably for that guy's sake. It's like, dude, run, run. Uh, that afternoon, Jill made a visit to a woman from her past, a woman she called the witch, and the witch was Terry Hoffman. Uh, as she had several times that spring, she paid Hoffman $60 for a psychic reading. Terry had told Jill that she was uh, uh, being paranoid. Yeah, she uh, told him that Adam just wasn't right for her, but that was okay. There would be someone else there for her, you know, out there in the world, uh, someone who wouldn't be so critical uh, uh, or she wouldn't be so critical of. Uh, but first, before meeting that person, you know, she needed to work on herself, learn to control her temper, figure out uh, where her anger was really coming from. No, yeah, right. She didn't say anything that practical. Uh, Terry told Jill that Adam was practicing black magic and Satanism on the astral plane, of course. Also said he was seeing two other women, but was too smart to ever get caught. <laughs> God, she's so destructive, so insidious. Finally, Hoffman said that if Jill didn't break it off, Adam was going to kill her. Apparently, Jill believed everything Hoffman told her and she broke it off with Schubert. And then she began to struggle with other relationships in her life. Just weeks before her death, she confronted her sister and brother-in-law about mooching off her mom. Because the way she'd done that, they discussed the possibility of uh, trying to get her into a forced uh, psychiatric stay, you know, for observation. She was acting weird. She looked thin, emaciated. Uh, later, when going through her daughter's financial records, uh, Jane, Jill's mom, would wonder why Jill had frequented Terry Hoffman so much. She wondered if maybe some of Jill's odd behavior was due to Terry. Uh, Jane also found an occult-looking drawing on the ground outside her daughter's bedroom several days after the murder. And colored marker, it showed the letter J, a bunch of grapes, a symbol for Omega, last letter in the Greek alphabet, uh, and a penis surrounded by several lightning bolts, sometimes called the Satanic S. Uh, nearby, she found a, a red toy robot with its legs pulled off and head crushed in. She wanted to have had something to do with Terry, uh, some kind of voodoo doll shit. Uh, Jane uh, would also suddenly remember how Jill took her to see Terry Hoffman for a psychic reading in 1976 or 77. Jane was unimpressed, but Jill was taken with her, signing up for classes in conscious development. Soon, Jill had told friends that she was Hoffman's right-hand woman, but then uh, that seemed to change in December 1982 when Jill considered leaving the group for reasons not disclosed. After leaving, Jill was worried that Hoffman would seek revenge. She told another therapist, Emmy Grunman, that Terry had sent cockroaches to plague her townhouse. But why then, after telling numerous people that she was afraid of Hoffman, did she return to the witch just, you know, uh, uh, months before her death? Another strange death some feel Terry Hoffman was connected to, if not outright responsible for. This stuff is creepy. Over five months later, March 3rd, 1989, Dick Donnie Hoffman, his kids, sue Terry for wrongful death by contending that she used hypnosis to persuade their father to kill himself. In June of 1989, longtime followers David and Glenda Goodman mark in their journal uh, that they have received instructions from God to practice shooting. Oh boy, now not looking good for them. Uh, David and Glenda looked to the outside world like a university professor, a Yale-educated professor actually, and his wife, but they were convinced that there were, uh, they were something much more special than that. They were astral travelers, soulmates to gods, which sounds fucking sick. Ah, I wonder if one of them was Lucifina's soulmate. Lucky. David, a former SMU business and computer professor, confidant, quiet man with dry wit, love for sports, Berkeley and Yale educated, uh, left teaching in 1987 to start an investment counseling service uh, and do newsletters and fucking crushed it. He was a very smart guy, but then he found Terry Grossman. Oof. Better beliefs, crazier concepts, Papa conscious development. In conscious development, he figured, I guess it'd be mama, mama conscious development. Uh, he figured out that he was once Jupiter. That must have been cool. The Roman god of the sky and thunder. Uh, he'd begun attending Hoffman's meditation classes when he was a newly hired SMU professor as far back as the early 70s. In 1982, David would testify as a character witness for Hoffman in a lawsuit over the will of Sandra Cleaver. 
right? The original uh, uh, Robin to Terry's Batman. Glenda Goodman, meanwhile, an articulate woman, daughter of a respected Dallas physician, uh, also a, a Berkeley graduate, longtime uh, homemaker, mother, devotee of the arts. Uh, but in her writings, uh, she started to say that she was really Venus, the Roman goddess of love, adopting the role of enforcer in her and her husband struggled to shed their earthbound mortal selves. In their time as members of conscious development, Goodman's had uh, seen the purple realm, their promised land, as Terry called it. And according to the couple's writing, spiritual guide Terry, uh, you know, took a, gave them a tour of it. How nice of her. I've had a lot of nice friends over the years, but none have been nice enough to show me the purple realm. Uh, no books that would later be found in the Goodman's home showed how deeply invested they were in the world of Terry Hoffman. One passage addressed to Goodman and his wife's hand read, you are no longer David Goodman, son of Allison Leonard. That person is gone because the programming is wiped out. You are Jupiter now. Wow. Uh, for this enlightenment, they had written checks to Hoffman for more than $110,000 and promised to give her half their future earnings. They're making a lot of good decisions. How fortunate to retain Terry's amazing services for such a steal of a deal. Uh, in return, Terry uh, had handed them uh, mind-altering white pills that helped them transcend their physical bodies and pull up into the spiritual world. What were in those pills? Uh, well, they weren't placebo effect pills, I'm guessing, like uh, Sandy had taken so many years ago. I think there's a good chance it was uh, MD MDMA, ecstasy. A lot of MDMA would show up in David's autopsy report when he dies. Was Terry enhancing her new age teachings with drugs? Ecstasy is a huge emotional accelerator. It can make you feel so happy and make you form attachments that aren't really real. Uh, was she adding to meditation techniques or something to make followers feel like they were truly leveling up? to some new plane of existence? Was she pulling off like fucking MK Ultra shit? Uh, as the good ones got further and further into Terry's group, they isolated themselves, you know, of course, more and more from their families. Standard cult shit. Glenda sent her young daughters to live with her father in Singapore and insisted that her daughters were welcomed back for only two weeks during the summer. Her family was infuriated. How could you do that to her kids? Uh, David reportedly considered the girls a distraction from their spiritual progression. Sounds like Terry. By late 1988, David had told his parents and adult son, Rick, that he could no longer communicate with him. So he's awesome. Now they claim to have instructions from God to practice shooting. Sounds safe. Four months later, according to the Goodman's notes discovered after their deaths, God announced that the way is clear to get high energies. It's like this. You are about to be joined in a marriage between your physical self and your spirit. All is in readiness. The date is set for October 20th. November 25th, 1989, David and Glenda Goodman are found dead. Officials would later estimate they'd been dead for around five weeks. So they could have died on October 20th. I'm thinking, obviously, they probably did. Uh, they were found just after Thanksgiving when the smell of their decaying corpses, uh, you know, oozed out into neighboring properties. Firemen then kicked in the front door. Uh, a stench rushed out into the street like a river. Some of these firemen uh, started vomiting. The firemen uh, had to put on gas masks. Uh, a cloud of insects came pouring out of the house. Oh my God, it's like a horror movie. They passed through the living room where they saw the corner of the room was rigged up as a miniature shooting gallery. A metal, metal stand held a paper target. Pellet guns propped against a chest freezer. On a coffee table in front of the couch sat a box of Remington high-velocity shells, a manual for a Ruger Mark II semi-automatic pistol. Then they spot the bodies. The corpses lay together on the carpet in front of the coffee table. The Ruger uh, rested next to David's body. 22 caliber revolver lay beside Glenda. Each been shot once with a gun placed smack against her skull. Uh, because the house was locked and nothing was missing, police and medical examiners conclude that the Goodmans carried out a double death ritual. They had either uh, shot themselves or one another, or one had shot the other, then committed suicide. And it seems as if they waited for a precise time to do it because an alarm clock lay at their feet. Investigators now began putting together what they could about the Goodmans' lives. 
A crumpled sheet of paper from a trash can beneath Glenda's desk supported the suicide theory. It said, I'm extremely depressed right now and would love to have the nerve to kill myself, but so far I can't get up the gumption. No suicide note or will would be found amongst their belongings, though. Uh, they also made no provisions for their two dogs, which sadly just uh, have been pacing in the backyard for weeks when they were rescued. Check registers found uh, at the Goodman House showed payments to Terry Hoffman, right? Totally not $110,000 between 1986 and 1989. Uh, the last period for which records were available. So they probably spent a lot more than that. Uh, most of the payments marked as fees between 50 and hundred bucks for counseling sessions. Even though Terry wasn't a counselor, other payments and lump sums, thousands of dollars, some of which were designated as gifts. Uh, David's father, Leonard was convinced that Terry was responsible for the deaths of Glenda and David. Leonard filed a wrongful death suit and insisted maybe it was a double suicide, but one word from Terry would have stopped it. And one word from Terry would have set it off. Agreed. Spurred by news reports about the Goodmans and the pattern of deaths that followed Hoffman, a criminal investigation is launched by the Dallas District Attorney's Office in January of 1990. Hoffman and conscious development, of course, deny wrongdoing. Hoffman's lawyer, uh, Fred Time, referred to the investigation as the witch hunt and praised his client's persona. Well, of course. Uh, they tried for four years, but prosecutors would not be able to find any actual evidence linking Hoffman to the deaths. Prosecutor Cecil Emerson would admit that while investigating the deaths, his interviews with surviving followers left him convinced that she had hypnotic powers. But the evidence just didn't translate into a grand jury proceeding. Emerson also added, these folks were emotional problems before they found her and they became easy victims for her. Hoffman worried about lawsuits, files for bankruptcy in October of 1991. Her bankruptcy declaration ultimately stays the civil suits waged against her by Leonard Goodman and Dick Donnie Hoffman's kids as when a bankruptcy is filed, you know, an automatic stay is enacted, which protects the debtor against certain actions from the creditor. Ah, uh, in, in response to Terry's bankruptcy filing, she was indicted with fraud charges, alleging that she hid a variety of assets, debts, payments, and contracts during the bankruptcy. Her supporters would claim that the bankruptcy fraud seemed to be a way of getting a conviction of some kind against her during this, uh, from their perspective, witch hunt. I mean, kind of, she kind of is a witch. She might actually be a witch. So maybe, I, uh, nearly three years later, <laughs> May of 1994, she was sentenced to 16 months in prison for 10 counts of bankruptcy fraud. However, she appeals the conviction arguing that there is insufficient evidence that she knowingly and fraudulently made false declarations and the conviction is reversed. Entire fraud case is dismissed and she's acquitted. She then gets married again, fifth time, to Roger Keenley, changes her name to Terry Leela Keenley, or Lilia Keenley, uh, writes a financial advice book later published in 2006 called The Colors of Money, Finding Your Money Force. Also in 2006, she launches a website that is still online if you want to check it out. It's called heavenandearthphoto.com. Does not look like it's been updated since 2007. Some of the parts don't work, but some do. On the homepage, it says, this unique collection is made up of over 400 photographs, including many cloud photographs of angels, archangels, spiritual beings, animals, happy beings, and pictures of beautiful landscapes, seascapes, orchids, and other flowers. Truly a fascinating look into the kingdoms of both heaven and earth. Here you will find a view into God's kingdoms, normally not seen by physical eyes, and many other photographs of earth's beautiful splendor. This gallery is filled with photos and artwork that give a true glimpse into the kingdom of heaven. View and purchase actual photos of angels and fairies that the artist saw, Terry, in the clouds, including divine beings and happy beings. She's so fucking nuts. Please come see these unique, amazing, miraculous pictures revealed to Terry in the clouds over Hawaii. I clicked on some of the picture galleries and uh, just clouds. Not even especially cool looking clouds. Just not even really that weird. Just for sure, just clouds. Uh, Terry Hoffman died on October 31st, 2015 at the age of 77. Very little, almost nothing is known about the last 20 plus years of her life. 
Uh, for the most part, after her fraud conviction is overturned, she just uh, disappeared. Probably, probably started spending most of her time in the astral plane or ether plane or something. Maybe made enough money on insurance policies and uh, scamming her followers to uh, and taking their jewelry just to never have to work again. Just focus on cloud picks. Uh, the conclusion of her obituary on a memorial website reads, So our leader has left us on the physio-astral, but nevertheless still exists on all the other levels until we meet again. I hope we never fucking meet Terry Hoffman again. Seemed like once was more than enough for humanity to have to deal with that poisonous lunatic. Good job, soldier. You've made it back. Barely. Terry Hoffman and the Conscious Development Cult. What a strange story. Not usually the story you get with cults. She legitimately creeps me out. Like other cult leaders, I'm like, I could fucking hang around and just mock them. She kind of fucking scares me. I'd be afraid she'd somehow hypnotize me. Somehow fucking put some kind of witch spell on me. I don't even normally believe in witches, but she creeps me the fuck out. Uh, There was no massive doomsday prediction, no allegations of sexual abuse, no forcing members to do insane shit by threats of violence. But she did convince her followers to do some horrible stuff, like fighting, uh, just insane stuff, like fighting black lords with sticks and karate moves and fucking probably killing themselves. Uh, you know, she seemed to really abuse the power of suggestion and seemed to be really, really good at some kind of form of mind control. She took her followers through tours of ancient temples, told them about their past lives, convinced them, really convinced them death was meaningless, uh, certainly abused the authority they had invested in her. And yeah, I do believe she somehow got people to kill themselves. Uh, did she also murder some of them outright? No idea, but I don't think so. Maybe manipulated someone else into doing it. Uh, according to Terry, her obsession with the supernatural would go all the way back to her childhood when she was four, you know, the, the daughter of impoverished laborers in Texas, supposedly was visited by the masters, you know, 12 ancient prophets, told her God was listening to her. Uh, these masters would reappear when she was nine, living in an orphanage, and so did some fucking weird spirit nun. Uh, and adopted at age 11, uh, you know, Terry had a few years of normal life before running away with John Wilder, age 15, becoming his wife. They'd have three kids together. But a suburban lifestyle would not curb her interest in the mystical and the occult. If she had it before. I think she probably made up that stuff later. Um, she started using spiritual advice, guidance, uh, in, in, or sorry, started researching the metaphysical and then giving spiritual advice and guidance to teenagers, many of them struggling with their emotions and relationships uh, before then incorporating adults into her meditation sessions and fortune telling, telling readings, etc. Pretty soon her followers found themselves living in an immersive world she had built where they fought against black lords on various planes of existence and protected themselves with powerful gems. Their goal, if I didn't mention it already, I think I said at the very beginning was, was joining God and the 12 masters through reincarnation in uh, a spiritual realm. And many of her followers would die. You know, those included Glenn Cooley, her husband, 14-year-old Devereaux Cleaver, uh, her, her mom and Terry's right-hand woman, Sandy Cleaver, Sandy's housekeeper, Louise Wheezy Watson, Robin Ostant, Mary Levinson, Dickie, uh, Dick Donnie Hoffman, uh, Jill Bounds, the, uh, the Goodman couple. One member disappeared, Charles Southern Jr., never found. In almost these, all these cases, the deceased had uh, willed their belongings to Terry, even if they had stepped back from conscious development or like Devereaux or, or Wheezy hadn't wanted to be involved at all. Terry, of course, would deny she had anything to do with the deaths, just tragedies, just coincidences. Spurred by news reports about the Goodmans and a pattern of deaths that followed Hoffman, a criminal investigation finally is launched by a Dallas District Attorney's Office in 1990, but they can't find an, uh, evidence to conclusively link her to deaths, even though they did come away thinking that she was kind of a fucking witch. Hoffman filed for bankruptcy in October of 1991, sentenced to 16 months in prison, 10 counts of bankruptcy fraud. 
Uh, but, uh, you know, she was uh, able to be acquitted. She appealed and won. Hoffman later married Roger Keenly, changed her name to Terry Leha Keenly, started a fucking janky website talking about clouds, uh, wrote a shitty financial advice book. Uh, from the looks of her obituary published after her death in 2015, still has some devoted followers. I'm not surprised. We meet sacks will believe the craziest shit. Faith. Faith is so powerful. You know, it can be such a wonderful guiding force for so many. I, I talk about the negative aspects of faith so much here, but there's a lot of positives. How many people have kicked addi- uh, addiction, rebuilt their marriages, rebuilt their whole fucking lives, climbed out of the gutter uh, into a place of stability and love and light because of faith? Millions, billions. But also, holy fuck, can faith be so, so destructive. It can easily wreck your whole life and the lives of those around you. The lives of those you'll never even know thanks to wars and terrorist acts fought on behalf of faith. Also, it can wreck your life in the strangest and most surreal of ways, the most illogical and irrational ways that make zero sense to anyone outside of your little echo chamber of convoluted beliefs because faith does not require any reason. But it should. Get out in nature, meat sacks. Really stop and listen to the world around you. Look at it. Look at the beauty, the blue sky, the starry night, the perfection of it all. If you have faith, you likely believe that something, not just science, made all that you can see, touch, hear, smell. I live in such a beautiful place, and and I like to go stargazing. I love to get out on the water as well, on Lake Coeur d'Alene, and get as far away from, you know, the other people as I can. Just soak it all in, listen to it. You really think that whatever made all of this also wants you to (laughs) have a fucking fake sword fight with invisible black lords? Come on. Do you think some omnipotent, omnipresent, uh, you know, creator would ever want you to not love your children, not spend time with your family? No fucking way. Don't you think a creator God would want you to be happy to flourish, to live and love in a universe they created and then dropped you into? If you don't think that, well, maybe fucking choose to. You can have any kind of faith you want. So have faith in something good, something wonderful, something sublime and healing and nurturing. If you're going to worship a God, worship one that adds harmony to your soul, one that deserves worship, not one that adds a bunch of wackadoodle, convoluted, let's make sure this expensive crystal is charged so you can reincarnate towards the coming new age, uh, make sure and meditate harder to keep your nefarious friend from sending their astral plane bodies to harass you uh, or their fucking secret CIA invisible agent Bush League bullshit. And Lucifina wept. Ah, hail Nimrod. Let's look back at all this insanity a few more times. Also learn something new in today's top five takeaways. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Number one, Jedi Terry Hoffman and her new age spiritual group uh, slash cult conscious development has been linked to the deaths of 10 people. Uh, Some of them ruled suicides like David and Glenda Goodman, Robin Ostot, Dick Donnie, Glenn Cooley. Others like the deaths of Devereaux Cleaver, Sandy Cleaver, uh, Louise Watson, Jill Bonds, far more mysterious. Most mysterious uh, of all is why all of these people, even those who had tried to distance themselves from conscious development, would leave their money to Terry Hoffman. Number two, Terry Hoffman created a blend of new age mysticism based largely on the writings of Edgar Cayce. Also, Madame Blavatsky, something called Silva Mind Control, lots of other spiritual fads that were hot at the time, like past life regression. Also claimed that she could only see the masters, a group of ancient prophets whom she could consult about the past, present, and future. Right again, classic Madame Blavatsky, theosophical shit. Uh, Theosophical. Uh, She taught her followers, first a group of high school and college students, then later well-to-do adults, that there were angels who controlled the elements. People paid karmic debt for what they did in past lives. Uh, Eventually that they had to wage war against evil black lords and uh, prevent global catastrophes from happening. Number three, 
Terry Hoffman was never charged criminally for the deaths that occurred in her cult. The Dallas DA office uh, simply could not find a case to be made, you know, based on mind control claims. But they did believe that those claims were real. Uh, civil suits were waged, though, and uh, but then stayed when Terry declared bankruptcy. Uh, no surprise she was never charged for the deaths. I mean, we learned how hard it is, how legally murky it is to charge someone with another person's suicide. Like in the case of Michelle Carter and Conrad Roy. Number four, we still have no idea what happened to Charles Southern Jr., a member of Conscious Development who disappeared from Chicago in December of 1987. Troubling hints in his apartment would raise more questions than they answered. When Charles' parents entered his home, they found that his passport had no entry stamps for India. In a drawer, they found a powerful medication similar to the lethal South American poison, Karare. And there was a folded up coat on a stool, a Nigerian symbol for death, along with some other arrangements uh, made at that symbol. If he's alive, he would be 68 today. Number five, new info. Terry Hoffman alleged that 11 people close to her, you know, either died or disappeared. Uh, just, it's just a mere coincidence. So let's take a break to look at some other coincidental deaths. This is just random, interesting trivia. Perhaps the most coincidental event in uh, U.S. history are the deaths of Thomas Jefferson, America's third president, John Adams, our second. They died on the same day, in the same year, on the 50th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence, <laughs> July 4th, 1826. Uh, on December 20th, 1922, J.G. Tierney was the first person to die while constructing the Hoover Dam. He drowned while surveying for an ideal spot for the dam. Last person to die during the project was J.G.'s son, Patrick, exact same day, 13 years later. Alexander I of Yugoslavia refused to attend public events on Tuesdays after three of his family members died on that day of the week. But then on Tuesday, October 9th, 1934, he had no choice but to speak as he arrived in France to strengthen their alliance, and he was promptly assassinated. 1995, a guest at a party for lifeguards celebrating their first drowning-free swimming season in memory drowned in New Orleans. One more, a 19-year-old in Ohio died after running the stop sign and being hit by a tractor trailer. He had been on a stop sign stealing spree and had at least three stolen stop signs in the back of his car. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Wow. Black Lords, Power Crystals, and Suicides, the cult of conscious development has been sucked. What a very weird little slice of history. People will truly, truly believe whatever they want to believe or whatever the right or wrong guru tells them to believe. Uh, thanks to the Bad Magic team for help in production. Queen of Bad Magic, Lindsay Cummins. Uh, thanks to Logan Keith for directing and producing today. Thanks to Bitelixir for upkeep on the Time Suck app. Uh, again, thanks to Art Warlock, Logan Keith, creating the merch at badmagicmerch.com, helping us run socials. Thanks to Sophie Evans for uh, the initial research this week. She told me this is a fucking crazy one. Uh, she found out about this topic, and thank you. Also, thanks to the All Seen Eyes moderating the Cult of Curious private Facebook page, the Mod Squad on Discord, and the uh, everyone on the Time Suck Reddit thread. Can I get those names? I've been a little bit slammed lately, but going to get those names uh, for more proper thank yous. Uh, next week, the Space Scissors have decided that I am to present the terrible life of, of dirtbag Randy Kraft, the scorecard killer. Originally called the Southern California Strangler by the press, Kraft brutally tortured his victims before strangling them, and he left behind a disturbing signature to distinguish him from other active serial killers in the area at that time. Kraft was officially convicted of 16 murders, but prosecutors filed a list of 45 victims, and it is believed by most familiar with the case that he killed 67 people, if not more. Uh, very likely one of the most prolific American serial killers. Kraft killed over a long period of time, from 1971 to 1983, targeting young men and boys, often hitchhikers or men coming in, uh, coming and going from gay bars in Southern California. He was active at the same time as a few other killers, making it harder for police to catch him than it otherwise would have been. 
When Highway Patrol pulled Kraft over for drunk driving on May 14, 1983, they were shocked to find a body in his passenger seat. This man was his final victim, and now the police would begin to learn about the victims before him. Inside Kraft's vehicle, they found a list with 61 cryptic entries, things like two-in-one hitch and oil. They came to believe that each of these 61 entries represented a different murder, and prosecutors began to work backwards to try and match victims to Randy Kraft. The charges continued piling up over the following days. Kraft's family and friends were shocked. How could a quiet, hardworking, intelligent man also be a brutal killer? Randy Kraft had two sides, a normal, everyday man side and a side that was an absolute fucking monster. Who was Randy Kraft? Uh, How did he get the nickname the scorecard killer? Uh, Who were the 60-odd victims he murdered? That is what we're going to be looking at next week on another true crime edition of Time Suck. Right now, let's head on over to this week's Time Sucker Updates. Updates? Get your Time Sucker Updates. A quick little reminder that this episode was recorded three weeks ahead of time because of a vacation I took, so the updates uh, won't reflect the past few episodes. Uh, first up, a missed opportunity to point out another Idaho connection in the Edward Snowden suck. In addition to Senator Frank Church warning us about the uh, NSA's uh, reach of power, uh, Marvelous Meat Sack Gabe McCarthy points out the deep throat. The deep throat from the Watergate scandal was from Idaho. Gabe writes, I'm surprised you didn't comment on the Idaho connection to deep throat. Mark Felt, a.k.a. Deep Throat, was born in Twin Falls and graduated from the University of Idaho. Yeah, and that's nuts, Gabe. I, uh, I, I looked into that. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Also, I've stayed in Twin Falls a day or two, a few times, because my aunt used to live there. And Twin Falls is the name of one of my favorite Built to Spill songs. Built to Spill, my favorite Idaho bands. I'm going to use this as an excuse to uh, give them some extra exposure. Uh, The song is about, not surprisingly, just Twin Falls. And I want to play a little bit of the beginning of this. Christmas, Twin Falls, Idaho is her oldest memory. She was only two. It's the first time she felt blue. Cafeteria Harrison, elementary. Beneath a parachute, I saw her without shoes. Oh, built a spill. Such a great and underrated band for so long. And their stuff grows on you. If you don't like it right out of the gate. Uh, yeah, the University of Idaho is less than a two-hour drive from the Suck Dungeon. And in Idaho terms, that's like that's like practically just uh, the next town over. So thanks, Gabe. Uh, next up, a blast from the misdirect past. Stupid, stupid sucker, Bailey Powell. <laughs> no, fell for my bullshit. And of course, she's not stupid. She's fun. Also, uh, so don't forget, while recording last week's episode, producer Logan Keith fell for my koala bullshit. Idiot. No, JK. Uh, Bailey writes, Dagnabbit, Dan, you got me. I'm over here minding my own business, working and listening to the mysterious death of John Benet Ramsey. Yeah, I know I'm behind. And you start spewing out crap about how there are beauty pageants for little nine-year-olds in, G- <laughs> in G-strings on poles and striptease catwalks. And I bought every fucking word. I was in the process of Googling when you finally let us know it was bullshit. And I haven't stopped laughing. Thank you for making my roommates think I've lost my mind. Wanted you to know that you can still get me after all these episodes. Your loyal suckling, Bailey. Bailey, it makes me so happy when people fall for that bullshit. It warms my heart. It's, uh, I used to do it at home a lot, but everybody's, uh, they, they've studied my, uh, inflections and it's very hard to trick my kids or life anymore. I forgot about that lie. I forgot that a lot of people fell for it. You're not alone. And when stories like today suck are actually true. I mean, the lies like that, that one really seemed that absurd because the world is so fucking weird. Uh, sweet daddy sack. Joe K would now like me to offer some words of encouragement. He writes, Hey Dan, 
Don't know if this is a place to send you this, but the app seems as good a place as any. It worked. I found uh, first found Time Suck about three years ago while looking up podcasts on Aleister Crowley. Two weeks later, after binging, I found myself unable to do yard work and listening to Albert Fish while weed eating. Show, showbiz. Uh, in the time since, you found yourself a loyal bad magician. And my wife is also a weekly sucker now. We've also now got a three-month-old space newt named Henry Hank once he learned how to throw a baseball. That being said, things have been pretty stressful lately. I've taken a second job to help make ends meet, and she has just quit her job at the end of her maternity leave to take a new position in a field she's been going to school for for the last year. We'd love to hear some encouragement from the suck master, both on my wife's new career and even more on daddy's little lefty making the bigs one day. Hail Nimrod. Well, hail Nimrod, Joe. How kind of you to ask uh, for a shout out for your wife who you did not name. And because of that, she now has a thousand fucking black lords. She has to fight off on top of everything else she's dealing with. So you got to make sure that she has plenty of pens, rulers, batons, small branches, toothpicks, whatever she can use for swords. Mrs. Joe K, no pressure, but you have to kick ass in your new career uh, or the Black Lords are going to regress your enlightenment three levels down or something. You're going to go to a shitty planet. They're going to they're gonna fuck your frequencies up so bad that your third eye is going to have pink eye. No, seriously, no. Uh, if you've been going to school while pregnant and while working another job, you clearly have what it takes to kick some fucking ass in your new profession. So do it and enjoy doing it. You're embarking on a new quest to alter your family's future for the better. Enjoy that ride, mama, and, uh, and get Hammer and Hank into batting practice ASAP. Put him on pace for some of those adorable t-ball home runs where the other team has like 15 infielders who look more like cats chasing a laser pointer than baseball players. Finally, one more. A uh, chance for me to nerd out just a bit. Fellow nerd sucker, James McCullough writes, Hi, Dan, I just want to tell you that I love your comedy and Time Suck truly gives me a hope for the future of rationality in the human race. That's nice. Uh, thanks for all that you do. P.S. Any comics you recommend? I have recently started reading Fables, which I believe you've mentioned on the show. I think so. And I'm hungry for more comics that exist outside of the typical superhero cast uh, we've seen. <laughs> typical superhero cast we've seen a million times. Yeah. Thanks, and I love you. Uh, sorry this email isn't longer. Well, I love you too. Uh, and yeah, James, uh, Fables is fun. Kind of read Fables too. So many, so many, gosh, so many great comics, so many great series. I have not had much time in the past few years to read many, unfortunately, but I, I, I'm going to start reading more, I think, here soon. I'm getting the, really, really getting the urge to do that again. I have kept up with one called Redneck. Uh, it's about an interesting family of Texas vampires, the Bowmans. They're running a barbecue joint in their little town for years, living off cow blood, trying to be good peeps, vampire peeps. Uh, and then their peaceful coexistence with humans ends uh, as generations of hate, fear, and bad blood bubble to the surface. There's vampire battles and the ancients and all kinds of shit. Donnie, Donnie Cates writes it. Donnie. I don't know what I said there. Donnie Cates writes it. I've had a chance to speak with Donnie. He seems like a really cool guy. Uh, I think I'll have time to dig back into some more series this year. Uh, this is an older one. I think I've talked about this too, but I really love Preacher by Garth Ennis. Way more intense and irreverent than fables. It's the story of Jesse Custer, a preacher in the small Texas town of Anvil. Uh, Custer becomes accidentally possessed by this supernatural creature named Genesis, the infant of an unauthorized, unnatural coupling between angel and demon. Genesis, you know, has uh, pure goodness and pure evil, uh, and and Genesis' power rivals that of God Himself, making Jesse Custer kind of blended with Genesis now the most powerful being in the powerful being in the universe potentially, and he sets out using this power on this crazy quest to find God and basically kick God's ass for not watching over us like he's supposed to be. It's very complicated. It's uh, definitely a cult classic, and also saga. I only read a few volumes uh, and then got too busy, but I would love to dive back into Saga, uh, epic fantasy sci-fi series depicting a husband and wife, Alana and Marco, uh, from a, a long warring extraterrestrial races 
Fleeing authorities from both sides of a galactic war as they struggle to care for their daughter, Hazel, who born in the beginning of the series, uh, will occasionally narrate the series as an unseen adult later on. And yeah, again, like a lot of the best comic series, there's just a lot to it. So enjoy. There's so much good art in the world. It's not just Terry Hoffman's. And hail Nimrod. Thanks, time suckers. I needed that. We all did. Another Bad Magic Productions podcast is done. Thanks for listening to Time Suck. Scared to death. Uh, thanks, thanks to Space Lizard for uh, listening to Secret Suck on Patreon. Uh, please don't make any of your uh, followers fight Dark Lords with cocktail swizzle sticks this week. It's fucking pathetic. Just keep on sucking. Bad Magic Productions. Whew. Uh, did I seem tired on that one, Logan? I think we're all tired, man. All tired? <laughs> you know what? I figured it out why I've been tired. It's this, uh, there's so many dark, dark lords. There's so many black lords in our, in our suck dungeon. I fought off five just coming in here this morning. You fought off five coming in here this morning? Yeah, it was three in the hallway and then <gasps> two as soon as I came in the door, man. God, it's so hard to fight these black lords all the time. We got to get... We got to get more crystals. We have to get more crystals and um, we need to get, I don't know, bigger toothpicks or something. We got to, we got to figure out our swords. I think that's where it's been rough lately. I'll get a hold of Lindsay and, and make a list. Crystal swords. Put, please put crystal swords on the list. I'm on it. Thank you. Fucking Dark Lords! <sighs> BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. America. 